Hello, welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. And I'm Andrew. And this week we're taking a look at Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket from 1987 to commemorate the passing last week of Orly Ermey. Yes. Yeah, we, we, this, this, this is something that our, our, our Twitter followers will have seen. He passed away Monday a week ago, actually. We weren't able to cover him immediately following because Milos Forman passed away. They passed away in quick succession. So we did Amadeus last week and we're doing Full Metal Jacket this week. Yeah, th- this, is, uh, this is our 250 RIP feed. Uh, section, yeah. It's like, I like that this year our version of the, the, the This Just In flood is, is very much like RIP podcasts for actors and directors who we, we actually quite love a great deal. We do, we do, we do, and and uh, the 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 these are people we quite uh, we quite respect. So if we call it the dead zone, it's n- it's not with any um, irreverence or cynicism. But yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Orly Army before we talk about Full Metal Jacket because the two are pretty much uh, inseparable. I think to some people, I think that it's, absolutely, it's hard to imagine one without the other. Yeah, the the, the it's kind of. Um, I suppose we'll talk about this later on, but it, it, Full Metal Jacket to me always seems like two movies. But there, 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 there is a movie in which um, Lee Ermey is is the strongest element, act, uh, element, and the, the most 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 powerful presence and uh, most significant actor, and he's not an actor. Yeah, which is remarkable. I mean, everybody knows the, the story of Orly Ermey, but it's worth repeating sort of the broad strokes of it. Uh, Ermey came from Kansas. Uh, he got into trouble as a child when he was arrested, I think, on his second or third strike. He was put in front of a judge. And again, in the parody of a, in like in a sequence that it feels like the Simpsons were parodying, he was given a choice. He could go to prison or he could sign up with the Marine Corps because the judge saw that he needed structure in his life. So he signed up with the Marine Corps. Um no jokes there about if he'd known there was a war on, he probably would have apologized. Uh, but <laughs> after that, he, he basically, he served his time. He was discharged, I think, medically. But he wanted to become an actor. Um, and he very much wanted to become an actor. And in fact, he had a role. I think Full Metal Jacket is his third role, technically speaking. Although, um, obviously, it's the one that everybody thinks about. I think he played a helicopter pilot in, for example, Apocalypse Now. Um, okay. And he played another military role as well. But what he did was he ingratiated himself in Hollywood in terms of as a technical advisor. Like a consultant. That's it. So if you wanted to make a movie about the US Marine Corps, you would hire Orly Ermey and Ermey would basically drill your troop, drill your basic extras for you, teach your actors how to handle weapons and basically help you present a more realistic or credible version of the US Marine Corps. And while he was doing that, and, and this is the great thing about Full Metal Jacket, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Orly Ermey's in the movie. So we'll talk a little bit about how he came to be in the movie. There's a famous story here where he wasn't cast in the role originally. No. He was just hired as a technical advisor working on the film. It's it's another example of Stanley Kubrick um, having more more respect for people the less... The, the the less he considers them an actor. Yeah. So if you're a child or if you're a um a <laughs> consultant, you're you you're 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 maybe higher in, in, in his esteem the, versus if you went to Juilliard uh, and studied professionally to be an actor. But I mean there's the thing where so basically what happened was 
he'd hired an actor to play the role of Sergeant Hartman, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. And in fact, the actor appears in the final cut of the movie as well. He's the guy who in the second half of the film fires a machine gun out of a helicopter. And if you've seen the film, you know exactly who it is. Yes, yeah, yeah. Anyone who runs is a VC. Anyone who stands still is a well-disciplined VC. <laughs> you guys ought to do a story about me sometime. Which is, which, is, which, is, which is also a great role. Basically, so it was the actor, his name his name's Tim. I don't actually have a full name to hand. Uh, but he was drilling... Probably best. He was drilling uh, extras. So that basically they were rehearsing extras for the sequences in on Paris Island, right? And so the actor who had been cast as Hartman was doing the scene for the video camera. And because, the you know, the scene was being shot for Kubrick to audition extras, he wasn't going like 110%. You know, he was doing it over and over with these groups of people. And he was kind of tired and he was worn out. And he figured that the camera that was, you know, the footage that was being shot was being shot for Kubrick so he could audition extras. So it wasn't going to be on him. So he was doing his very sort of lackadaisical, sort of relaxed performance, very casual. But he was getting exhausted after using his voice all day rehearsing these extras. Then Orly Ermey shows up and, you know, he's like, you look, you look tired, Tim. You should go go take a rest. Don't worry, I'll, I'll take over here. It'll be grand. I'll, I'll do the lines with these guys. It'll be fine. So, you know, Tim... Ret- slime! That's it, exactly. So Tim... T- Tim Sorry, ret- that was terrible. That was not good. Not good at all. But yeah, so Tim retires. Orly Ermey steps up to read lines with these extras that they're recruiting and goes 110% tear their throat out performance uh, on the videotape, knowing that Stanley Kubrick is going to watch this. Kubrick inevitably watches the tape with the auditioning the extras, watches Tim giving a very lackluster performance, then sees Ermie coming in and just going straight for the juggler and is like, ha, this guy is going to be my Sergeant Hartman. Tim was like, Stanley, I was just half-assing it. I thought it was meant to be half-assing it. That was the direction here. You don't seem like a guy who's a perfectionist at all. (laughs) Uh, And it's it's funny that you should mention, like, because, I mean, we'll we'll talk a little bit about Ermie later on, but in terms of... um, in terms of like Kubrick's respect for Ermi, and you're you're quite right. I suspect there is something about his respect for people who are not actors, where Kubrick would famously ask for multiple takes from actors, and he would exhaust them. And this is particularly true in the second half of this film, where Modine, like he talks about it in Full Metal Jacket Diaries, where they would do scenes like 30, 40, 50 times yeah. until Kubrick landed on the delivery that he wanted, the performance She's that he wanted. It's not a surprise. Yeah, given what you, you know about Kubrick, and also given looking at, at, at the second half of the film. But what's interesting about Full Metal Jacket is Kubrick apparently really struck a chord with Ermi. And he could find that Ermi could deliver the lines that, or the performance that uh, that Kubrick wanted in two or three takes. Yeah, which is I can believe that remarkable. I can I can believe that too. But it's it's remarkable, and I think it speaks to what you were saying about Kubrick maybe having more respect for people the further they are from acting as a profession. Yeah, because I think there's a sense of lived in quality to Ermi playing the role. Yeah, there, there there is more of a truth to us. He's not acting really. Like he he's he's um, perf- performing in a way, but he he's I I guess performing a duty that 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 he's uh, familiar with. I don't know if he was a drill sergeant himself, but he's certainly familiar with how with, it works. The yeah, mechanics yeah. at play. Like I mean, there's a, he got to write a lot of his own insults uh, and a lot of his own dialogue. I for was this. wondering that because the the that scene. 
Um, the opening scene. Well, the yeah. opening scene after the characters get their hair cut. We won't go into too much detail, but it's very early in the film. Yeah, but it's it is terrifically well written, and the the, the um, so the to I I I was thinking I can't imagine somebody is is writing this who's not kind of au fait with 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 that job. You know, it, 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 it's it it seems like this is a lot of. There, there's, there's just a kind of like a realness to it where this is something that somebody has. This is like a phrase book that somebody has developed over years. Yeah, somebody's got used to. Somebody who's written this has probably used this or seen this used in real life, almost, yeah. or something equivalent to this. And that, that's actually correct because he wrote, I think, one hundred and fifty pages of insults for Kubrick. Because, we've seen, we've seen, um, we uh, last year. Or maybe even no, no. Um, we did the Mel Gibson movie, Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge, where um, Vince Vaughn, uh, yes, is playing hard plays, ass drill sergeant. Plays a version of this, and it, it's not good. But the re- one, one, one of the reasons it's not good is because you're going to compare any of those performances to Orly Army, yeah, and it you just can't do it. Um, as well. Do you want to know? Here's here's a really cool like little factoid about those about those rants, right? Factoid. I know everyone loves factoids, but yeah, you know that the the bit where there's a line where he says, "Well, first of all, I like the description of his sort of bigotry as almost a liberalized homophobia, where he's talking about how you look like you'd have the uh, you look like you'd have the indecency to screw somebody in the ass and not have the common courtesy to give them a reach around." Yeah. Which is like a wonderfully almost liberal homophobia. It's like, it would be okay. I'm okay with, you know, people who are that orientation, but at least have the common courtesy to appreciate your partner's orgasm. But, interestingly enough, while they were shooting that, Kubrick actually interrupted the take. Um, and I'm sort of imagining this like a scene from Chasing Amy. He's like, he raised his hand and he asked Orly Ermey, uh, what's a reach around? Uh, prompting Orly Ermey to explain in, in very polite terms, because he's not actually Sergeant Hartman, what a reach around was and how that worked in this context. Apparently Kubrick had a fit of giggles and told him to do it again and leave it in. Um, <laughs> but I, I like that. That's kind of a wonderful story. Son, do you not know gay culture? <laughs> I bet they don't even have gay culture where you're from. Yeah. You don't even know what the letters LGBTQ stand for. Um, yeah, there's there's something that equal opportunity hate speech that he gives, which is very yeah. much in the style of Dirty Harry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, he, he he yeah he he says that like he's he's tough but he's fair, and <laughs> and then proceeds to list a whole um, uh, like laundry list of racial epithets and promises uh, that he hates them all equally. Yeah. Um they are all scum in his eyes. <laughs> but it is it's equally fa- worthless. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic performance and it's amazing. And like we're we're probably gonna have to talk about this a little bit later on, but we will concede that one of the criticisms of Full Metal Jacket straight out in the gate is that it is a film of two halves, as you said, and that the second half is not as good as the first half. And I reckon, like, there's a debate to be had about that. I think the second half has its own merits, we'll talk about those later. But I reckon a large part of the reason for that attitude is down to Ermi's performance. Yeah, he's just absolutely. a force of nature. He's yeah. just on the stop with the cam- and the camera loves him. Yeah, because because this this movie would have been fine. Yeah, maybe without without Orly Ermi, and it would have would have felt like the same kind of um, 
per perhaps quality or perceived quality throughout. But he really elevates the the the, the first half of this movie. Do you want to know something crazy? Tell me something crazy. The year that he gave this performance, he didn't get an Oscar nomination, and he didn't obviously didn't win. But you know that Lou Gossett Jr. won for playing a drill sergeant in An Officer and a Gentleman. Really? And it's kind of absurd. Like, I like Lou Gossett Jr. I think he's a great actor. But it's kind of funny that you should point out, like, Vince Vaughn doing a pale imitation of Orly Ermey. Because it's like, when Hollywood looked at, like, drill sergeants, it was like Lou Gossett Jr. is the one that we deserve, we can, we deem to be deserving of, like, an award praising his performance and his ability to anchor a Well, it's just a kind of, I mean, the Oscars are in part a way, a way for the industry to pat themselves on the back. Yeah. So to give it to somebody who, who's, who's outside the industry. Yeah. Would it would 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 just be uh, humiliating for them? <laughs> but uh, it is it is remarkable, and he's like Ermy, like it's it's no disrespect to Ermy, uh, particularly given the power of this performance, because this is a singular performance. This is a performance that's like one of the great movie performances ever, I would argue. But he's in some ways defined by it, and I think he was perfectly fine with that. Yeah. Like a lot of the roles that he played after this. So, for example, he was in Toy Story playing the voice of the lead plastic soldier, for example. He was in The Frighteners by Peter Jackson playing the ghost of a U.S. drill sergeant uh, directing Michael Fox to get up off his ass. Um, and a various other iterations that in House, the, the popular TV show starring Hugh Laurie, he played Hugh Laurie's father, who, again, was a strict disciplinarian. Like And an American <laughs> Which of course, Doctor Houses. Yes, the uh, people were shocked in in America to find out that Hugh Laurie was not an American. Yeah, it's, turns out he's a Brit. Yeah, um, he's he's just as a really good British accent on those sitcoms, um, <laughs> on the Blackadder and stuff. But he and like I discovered while doing research for this, Orly Ermey licensed a doll. A talking doll of himself in the mid nineties. Do you know what else he licensed more recently? A well, I don't know if he did license it, but it was in the app store. An early army soundboard. That's pretty amazing. Remember when I had my my good phone before it got stolen? Yeah. And I wanted to introduce soundboards onto the IMDb 250. Was Orly Ermy? Orly Ermy was one of the soundboards that I installed. Oh. I was like, you maggot. I feel like I feel you like maggot. I feel like we've missed an opportunity because he does. He's, he's talked about how like he recorded all the he wrote and recorded all the dialogue for the action figure himself, and even there's pictures. We'll include them in the show notes of him holding up an Orly Ermy doll, which says, "Touch me if you dare, you maggot." Um, <laughs> it's it's really really good, and he's he sort of he comes across quite well. He was very obviously he was very pro military, and obviously he was very pro gun and stuff. But he comes across really really well in interviews. He seems like a very charming, engaging sort of person he's, he's had, yeah. had a real energy to him well i think decided upon we 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 uh, well sorry no i was i was about to say kind of never mind never <laughs> I, I, I was going to say we we um i'm not pro-gun this i decided upon it's just such a, a bit bizarre position um so we tend to kind of like think of somebody being pro-gun as so kind of beyond beyond the pale yeah but in and i i, I guess in Mar- in america there's all sorts of a, uh there's a whole spectrum yeah. of, of of beliefs on 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 gun control and it's not so unusual 
Yeah, for um, somebody to be put on. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. Actually, I, maybe I'm just defending him because no. he's... Well, I love his performance, yeah. but also the man just died. Yeah, and uh, I, I mean, that's fair. And I mean, the way that I said it did sound like I was using that as, as a detracting or a dismissal. How position. dare you? I know. But no, he, he, but he comes across really, really well in interviews. And there's lots of interviews from around. Not in the pro-gun lobby. <laughs> just, just, just to be, yeah, yeah. Andrew, Sorry, go on now. Andrew's, sort of, Andrew's already been bought out. Andrew's attempt to get sponsored for the podcast. The NRA were very, very keen on this. Um, interesting enough, and it's amazing. I was reading, like, again... When I was doing this, I was reading up on both Ermi's interviews and Ermi's quotes and obviously people's reaction to to his passing and to like the film itself and stuff. And I think that uh, John Hodgman uh, made some very good points. He was asked, basically, he was discussing the movie uh, with The Dissolve a couple of years ago and he was talking about how he isn't a huge fan of Full Metal Jacket and he hadn't watched it in about 15 years when he last sat down to watch it. But he was amazed at how much of the film, and particularly of Ermi's performance, had permeated popular culture. Oh, like, yeah. what is your major malfunction? Did mommy and daddy not show you enough love when you were a child? Those are the ones that we can say on this PG-13 podcast. Yeah. Did your parents have any... Did your parents have any children that lived? Yeah, that sort of stuff. And there's a sense that, like, these are lines that everybody can quote. And, I mean, I even remember from, like, secondary school getting lines like that. Or, you know, so late secondary school getting sort of, like, what is your major malfunction? Or various other sort of iterations on the uh, the wonderful combination of swear words. Yeah. I, I, I um, and and it, it, it made such an, a, a sort of an impact that sometimes other lines that weren't in this movie were kind of in my mind sort of also were in this movie i don't believe at any point does he say quit jiving me turkey um but i i think people would sometimes throw that in when um, they were when 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 they were going through the whole gamut of like or lee army rants yeah. and quotes and stuff because it is it's amazing how much just how much there is in that performance and again without getting too spoilery the character is only really in the first half of the film but he dominates it so thoroughly. And you could argue that his absence from the second half is maybe a structural problem or maybe something that, that the reason why the film isn't as well regarded as it might otherwise be. I don't know if it's a structural problem so much as kind of a structural quirk. Yeah. I think it's... Uh, yeah, I suppose we'll talk about that in the second half. All right, but let's let's talk a little bit then about Full, Full Metal Jacket just very, very briefly. I mean, do you remember when you first saw it? I feel like I was young enough watching this i think i i i um i might have been like 12 or 13 or 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 so i feel like i might have seen it around the same time as platoon yeah. um and that it was, it was it was kind of um part of this list of um great kind of vietnam movies that that, that um that taught us that vietnam was really cool yeah, that's and, the message that we're taking away and, from this. Uh, yeah, like Apocalypse Now, Platoon, um, Full Born Metal on the Fourth of July. This, yeah, I suppose Born on the Fourth of July to 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 a lesser extent. I think that that the maybe the reason why this feels like two movies is that rather than making uh, um, a number of movies like Oliver Stone did, that because yeah. um, uh, Stone Kubrick made a trilogy, famously, to, yeah. yeah, that Kubrick just wanted to to make a. Singular. Vietnam movie, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I mean, 
it is worth wondering about that because I would have come to it around the same time in, in my life. I think I approached it from the point of view of Kubrick rather than approaching it from the point of view of Vietnam. I think I saw it a bit after I saw Platoon and a little bit before I saw Apocalypse Now. I think it might have been the same for me. Well, I mean, I think that's probably... I a think good... I also saw that Michael J. Fox movie at some point. Oh, as Casualties of War. No, that's Sean Penn. Uh, which, Hamburger Hill, no? Um... I'm not sure. He, um, in in it, he um, objects on moral grounds to a, a rape of a, of a yes. Vietnamese... It's Casualties of War. And casualties it stars war. both Michael Fox and Sean Penn. So we were both technically right, which oh, is satisfying. Yes. Sean Penn is the baddie. Yeah, well, of course, Sean Penn is the baddie. Um, yeah, I'm sure he asked for that. <laughs> but in, in real life, as much as in fiction. Yeah, yeah, it's like, um, I'm just getting in character, <laughs> yeah. said Sean Penn. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just rehearsing for this role where I play a terrible human being. Uh, but anyway, so, and I feel like this is kind of interesting because this is worth having the conversation. There's a lot of Vietnam movies on the 250, and understandably so, because Vietnam is, you know, one of the defining American conflicts of the 20th century, along with the Second World War and stuff. In fact, I think there's about as many Second World War films as there are Vietnam films. And I think it it sort of defines the American psyche. It's been described as the first war we lost, that sort of attitude. We. Yeah. I, 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 um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I, I, I know, I know you're speaking in in the in the voice of of of, of Americans. <laughs> but it's so funny when when we talk about this um, kind of um, list as well. We um, and when we talk about the Oscars, we're like, this was the first foreign movie, yeah, to uh, be nominated for, it. and it's like, what? Yeah, I mean, aren't they all technically foreign <laughs> movies to us? Um, yeah, I think that's, that's fair. And I, I think there's a comment to be made about how ubiquitous American pop culture is. And the movie may even possibly allude to that at certain points as well. Perhaps. Perhaps we'll have to wait until the spoiler zone to see that. But in terms of, like, Vietnam movies, like, because on the list, obviously, there's this, there's Platoon, there's Apocalypse Now and stuff like that. And I have to admit... This is probably my least favorite of those three, of the three big sort of holy trinity of Vietnam War movies. Yeah. This is probably my least favorite. I much prefer Platoon, and I really, really like Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Uh, this, I didn't like when I was younger, I have to admit. I, I actually took, except, and I don't want to say I took exception to it, but I didn't like it, particularly compared to the other Kubrick films I'd seen. And this was, for a while, one of my least favorite Kubrick films. And, you know, it's it still, to a certain extent, is um i've grown to respect it and admire it and now when i watch it i think i can see what it's doing i've just not entirely convinced by it i don't entirely go along with it yeah i i quite like it for its for its tonal diversity and i i I think movies like um platoon and apocalypse now have a sort of a solemn kind of earnest quality or like 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 uh, the whole um well anyone who's seen platoon uh will re- 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 recall the, the 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 sort of messianic and Willem of, Dafoe um, Willem Dafoe literally yeah, and... walking carrying his machine gun like a cross before he gets shot in the shape of a crucifix before leaving the set to go and make a movie in which he plays Jesus by the way that this is spoilers for all movies yeah but uh, and we We're, haven't, we haven't even zone. hit the spoiler zone but but yeah where, whereas this, this this is a movie 
that plays uh, uh, a, a lot more with 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 tone, and that isn't that is a serious movie without being a total drag. <laughs> if Take you that, know what Oliver I mean. Stone. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean the the um the the this. I do like the idea of Andrew telling Oliver Stone to lighten up his buffs <laughs> on a joint. Um, the, yeah, no, the the. the um, like the thing about those movies is like this is also a very serious movie but they they there there's there's a lot of um there's a lot of very dark comedy in it and yeah. a lot of kind of um sharp satire yeah that 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 those movies kind of have have a message that's a lot more kind of preachy earnest you know? perhaps earnest yeah I, I'll, I'll give you that in platoon like platoon is incredibly earnest and like platoon i understand why it's incredibly earnest because stone actually was in vietnam and it meant a lot to yeah. him and so it's I, like I, that's I, not I, a criticism i don't think that you know but the thing with um for example it, it, yeah, sorry sorry go on ahead i was gonna say with apocalypse now actually i i one of the things i really like about apocalypse now is the sort of weird dream-like metaphorical sort of abstract quality where it feels almost like this grotesque fairy tale mm. in some ways it I, it feels untethered from reality in some respects and actually there are parts of this that have a similar sort of feeling to it particularly towards the climax of the story um, right. and i don't want to get too specific or whatever but where stuff like the set design and, and the way in which it's shot makes it look like the characters have like wandered out of the physical world into like an abstract metaphorical and wakanda or not not wakanda <laughs> what's the name of that uh, uh planet in uh, um the thor ragnarok Oh yeah, <laughs> no, not not quite like they wanted to Sakar. Um, yeah, um, but I was thinking more like hell itself with fire and like cackling and broken architecture and all this sort of stuff that feels very almost stylized in a way. Um, and I like that aspect of Full Metal Jacket, but I feel like yeah, Full Metal Jacket for me it it seems almost and this is the thing where people describe Kubrick as cold and maybe it's not fair, but it's it rings true for me at certain points. It feels very meticulously put together it feels very carefully constructed it feels very very built almost i no, I, I i would disagree with that i think they're like I've, I've we've already spoken about um orly army but i think the for me kind of permeating through the movie is a very natural quality i mean they're 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 i suppose we'll 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 talk about it later on, kind of in, in terms of the way the movie is shot and that sort of thing, and some of the performances and that. There are there are a, a exceptions to that kind of natural quality that I think the movie has. But um, yeah, I, th- I, I I I I I think I like Kubrick a lot more than you do, anyway. And again, I don't want to seem like I in, hate Kubrick. Like being one in, of the least good Kubrick films is still being a very good film. I feel I feel like you 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 don't like him. Because, uh, well, sorry, no, you do like them, like him. I think your issue with 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 him is that you 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 want to be the only cold dead heart in the room. Yeah, that that's the big issue. I get jealous. Um, yeah. No, I mean, and I mean, it's it's kind of funny because again, I kid. <laughs> it's funny because like I'm a big fan of like Christopher Nolan, for example. Right. He's criticized on many he's of the been, same grounds. Yeah. But you disagree. I would he's, very uh, strongly disagree. Uh, as cold as people would um, um, insinuate that he is, or whatever. Like I mean, whereas as Kubrick occasionally, like Kubrick, for me, and and I I know that a lot of Kubrick fans would disagree, veers into something approaching just like cold dead nihilism, where it's like, wouldn't everything be better if we were all dead? Um, I I don't know. I, f- I, f- I feel like this enough. Uh, the uh, the 
I I know we're just kind of like going back and forth without any specifics. But yeah, yeah, yeah for 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 me this is a warm movie. Warm. Yeah. A war or a warm? Warm movie. <laughs> warm uh, movie. <laughs> warm space. Get movie. that one more time, Andrew. Yeah. Warm Thanks, movie. Thanks, Dave. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, be because of the the like. The, I I guess I'll talk a little bit more about it as we 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 go along. But yeah, no, it, it for me it's not a cold movie mm. um, at all. It's it's a very um, it is it is it is it is a movie that is full of a certain amount of. Uh, despair but I think there's a certain amount of warmth in its in in the lens that it that it puts on the people who are in this uh, environment situation yeah yeah and I mean like I, I since we're sort of getting to that point anyway I should be absolutely clear I would recommend completely that people watch this like I mean yeah I'm not a huge fan of it um, I'm not as I don't love Kubrick as much as I admire him um, I think it's a fantastic constructive film I think it's very worth watching uh, what about yourself like I assume you're a hard recommend. Yeah, yeah, no, I am absolutely, um, and I would agree that it's it's maybe weaker in the first half than than the first than, half or the second half. Um, oh, sorry, weaker. It's stronger in the first half than in the second. Weaker in the second half than in the <laughs> first. Um, Thanks, Dave. We got it. We got you. Good, good, good. Um, okay, so. Um, yeah, but 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 I I still t- I, I I would recommend a person watch the movie if it were just the second half. I think it's the strength of the first half that really makes that so jarring. Yeah. All right then, and I guess then would you would you like do you like seeing it in the two fifty? Do you think it belongs in the two fifty? Would it make your own two fifty? Yes. Yeah, I think it would. I mean, I'm I I I really do quite like um, Kubrick. I still haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut. I, I saw oh, no. I saw a good portion of that recently, <laughs> and it was just too much for you. Yeah, no, well, no, I I I, I just did, did it came came in kind of like maybe a third of the way through it or something like oh, that. Did you say at the end or did you flick off? No, you see, the thing is, if I haven't seen the movie from the beginning. I'm less likely to stay to the end. That makes sense. That's fair. I mean, it is worth pointing out that uh, Eyes Wide Shut is the only Kubrick movie after this one. This is arguably his last completed, fully 110% completed uh, Kubrick film. And he used... uh, Most of his movies, he did 110% completion. Yeah. um, Mathematically, it was impossible, but we... Kubrick did it. Uh, But yeah, so this this is the last sort of fully complete one, you know, looking past the controversies that exist with Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, Eyes Wide Shut is then his last, the only film after this, and the only film after this that isn't on the 250. So we won't actually get a chance to talk about it, which is a a bit of a shame, because it's an interesting film as well, much like all of Kubrick's films are interesting. Yeah. I didn't, what I saw, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't crazy about it, but yeah, it would, it would, it, it, uh, we'll never get to talk about it, unless we're just talking about how we would rank uh, Kubrick movies from like one to (laughs) (laughs) to pick an arbitrary number um okay well i mean uh from my point of view like i I don't we've already done that yeah on barry linden we did where we sort of said is this your favorite kubrick movie how does this how does this rank roughly for you and kubrick is this middle of the field is this top of the field i think i said clockwork orange yeah um is your favorite yeah yeah 
So they, they, I'm not going to run through them. Okay. Yeah, no, no, I feel like I feel like we we'd be we'd, we'd be, get a different order every time. Yeah, we'd be running over ground that we've already treaded, yeah. but like leaving talking, different imprints. Yeah, we're talking middle of the field, top of the field, bottom of the field. I, I I'm and it would probably be in the conversation of the kind of top five, top nice. three. Good. Yeah. Okay. That's actually quite high. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the the um and and. And again, going back to early army, that's a huge part of it. Yeah, and I suppose it's it's yeah, it, it was it was. I I think I probably saw it at the right time, and it stands up. Yeah, which, it's, it's aged very well. From my point of view, it's gotten better every time that I watch it. I think I watched it three times, and every time it's improved for me. Yeah, because um, there's so much in the second half to recommend this movie. Yeah, and particularly because once you figure out what. What I think it's doing, anyway, we'll talk a bit more in the spoilers about that, but what it seems to be doing, once you figure that, that out or get on its wavelength, it becomes, I think, a lot stronger. It makes a lot more sense in its senselessness, if that makes sense. Sense. Yeah, that's the key word of the day. Yeah, for me, I don't mind seeing it on the 250. Uh, I don't feel particularly strongly about it either way. If we were to cut one or two uh, Kubrick films from the list... This would probably be it. I'm afraid to say A Clockwork Orange would probably be the other one, Andrew. But we'll have a strong fight about that when that comes up. Um, So with that in mind, then, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone! So, Andrew, what is Full Metal Jacket about for you? Oh, damn, I forgot that you do this to me when we don't have guests. It's <laughs> such a kind of dehumanizing um, of, 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 of humans. And then the, 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 the movie uh, puts out its... Um, I mean, it's about a lot of things, and I've, I've, I've said that it's kind of like two movies rather, rather, rather than just one. But it, the, the way it sets out its stall is very clear. Yeah. Because they're, they're having their heads shaved... In one scene, and they all have different haircuts. Yeah, and they're they're ha- have it, having their kind of identities removed. Yeah. In the second scene, there is a a second level of identity stripping, where it's right. like, "What's your name? <laughs> your name's Joker, or yeah. like your name's Pile. Snowball. Yeah. Your name's Pile. Lawrence um, is a name for f words or sailors, and you don't look like a sailor to me, son. Yeah, and and where where uh, so it's. It's little by little taking away their um, identities. Their identities, and it, it's saying you, your, your ass belongs to me, which, 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 which is, um, he, he says your, what is it? Your hearts belong to Jesus. Yeah, your ass belongs, belongs to me. the U.S. Marine Corps. Yeah, your, uh, sorry, your ass belongs to the U.S. Marine Corps. I'm thinking of Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Yeah, um, very similar. Very in similar sense. lines. Yeah. Well, I, I, I wonder. Uh, parallel, and both about institutionalization. Thinking yeah. there, institutionalization and de- uh, demonization. And there's definitely a um, sense in which um, there's there's kind of parallels that you can draw between that sort of um, institutionalization in the army and institutionalization per se, yeah. because they, late, later on. I mean, the mo- the movie is kind of tragic comic up until a certain point where it goes full dark um, for 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 a while, and that's the 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 beating scene yeah. um, that we have later on. And the way the way they accentuate that that the 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 kind of 
institutionalization of of it is the, the way the way the way it's kind of shot, and it's an interesting scene because it's kind of like blue lit. Yeah, um, to give as, you the effect of night and, and eerie, and it's it's yeah, cold. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of cold and sterile. But there's also a weird kind of a. Um, it's an interesting scene because the way they kind of creep around is sort of atavistic. Yeah, and like 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 they're like a, a pack of of dogs almost. But they, but they're they it, and it, they, it, they line up as well. They follow even in in this beating. They follow the like Marine Corps sort of like order and structure where they form an orderly line and beat yeah. them one at a time. Because it, it's 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 this kind of. A coordinated sort of like psychiatric brutality yeah where they're they're administering a kind of well, i mean even the establishing shot in that scene if you remember is them putting the soap bar in the towel folding it over yeah. with a four inch fold like there's a very great there's a great deal of attention paid to the mechanics of how this beating operates as well and the, kubrick sort of presenting them almost as cogs in a machine you know there's 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 something very um there's something very interesting about the kind of contrast to the kind of coldness of uh, 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 to there there there's there's some there's something very kind of uh, clinical about it but also something very brutal and well the, the bit afterwards where he well okay even the bit in the middle where after they've all lined up and take their shots joker is is the last one left and it's funny because you've seen him with the towel first he's been standing there longest he's the one who can't do it as part of the queue he has to wait and build himself up and when he does he doesn't just hit pile once he hits him several times repeatedly and it's it's like he's hitting him because um and he's angry with him because he has to hit him yeah and 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 it's like damn you for making me hit you i'm going to hit you more now yeah as if something's been unleashed inside himself, and there's, and then you have like the scene lingers as well, which is quite a nice touch because it begins very oh, cold so and painful. clinical, and then you have the shot of of Vincent D'Onofrio, like it literally like a baby because he's been presented, he's been infantilized throughout the film, made to walk with his pants around his ankles and his thumb in his mouth and yeah. sit down and eat a donut while everybody you know sort of does their push-ups. Here he's sobbing like a baby in his bunk, yeah. and you just have this reaction shot on Joker's face. It's very, very effective, and it is very emotional, despite how clinical the scene had been to that point. Yeah, but like in the in the in the build up to that, and this is what I kind of spoke about the kind of tonal diversity to use kind of big words. It's very well balanced. The humor and the brutality it comes just one after the other after yeah. the other. So you're kind of like laughing, and somebody has said something terrible. Yeah. But it's 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 deliver it's it's delivery by Orly Ermy. You're almost laughing at like, oh, don't um, don't you choke yourself? Yeah, don't touch my hand, maggot. Yeah, Get your throat over here, and yeah, don't choke yourself with your own hands. And it, it is something kind of like ludicrous about it. But then it, it, he actually chokes it, him. Yeah, and this has gone from pile grinning and kind of um, he it has this kind of. Like baby um, face grin, like he's almost enjoying the experience yeah. or the army. And there's so something speak. kind of adorable ab- 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 about this 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 character up until the soap scene. There, like the slow breaking of 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 a man from when you from yeah. when you see him in 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 the in the in the first scene, kind of smiling as he's getting his his his, hair his uh, curls. Um, taken, t- off. T- taken out 
to 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 him he he can't stop himself from laughing because he finds he finds the drill sergeant amusing because he is yeah hartman hartman is hilarious and i mean it's very much a show it's very theatrical and all this sort of stuff like i mean it is something to to sort of say about that is watching the movie hartman is a fascinating character and i know we talked about ermy like as a presence but hartman as a character yeah because I think Kubrick made this point. It's that, like, in the world of the film, Hartman is mostly just doing his job and doing it relatively well. Now, Ermey's come out and said, look, Ermey, like, Hartman crosses a number of lines when he's drilling them that he shouldn't cross. That no sergeant would do. He shouldn't physically slap them, for example. No drill sergeant would do that. But basically, the point that Kubrick's made and the point that Ermey's made is that, as far as Hartman's concerned, he is giving them the hard heart that he talks about. He's instilling in them a sense of like wanting to like making them killers yeah. what they need to be to survive the, the character is internally consistent yeah and in the the context of kind of um system and in the context of of, of what he's trying to do i don't think there's any actual uh malice yeah or villainy and i mean yeah. like and i want to say because just when you're talking about like which the sounds villain- like a crazy thing to do when you when you when you think about the yeah, what's involved? Yeah, but I mean, what I was thinking about when you're talking about like the build up to the soap scene and how it is tragicomic and how it is blackly funny and all this sort of stuff. Like watching those early scenes with Pyle, it almost seems like if you squint, you can almost see that Hartman wants Pyle to succeed. You can believe that he's being tough on him because he needs to be tough on him. Stuff like, for example, when he's you know trying to urge him to get over the top of the. Uh, the top of the giant ladder thing or when he yeah. when he can't give him one push up and he tells him to just go on like there's a sense that Hartman wants to push pile as long as pile is willing to be pushed and it's the discovery of the jam donut which sets Hartman off which is basically pile not trying anymore it's pile giving into what Hartman perceives to be his weaknesses like almost up until that point you can believe that Hartman wants something that he believes to be best for pile like yeah, well, it's and 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 there's the point at which Hartman gives uh, Joker the um, the 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 role of uh, platoon leader, leader. Yeah. and first um, thing he 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 says to Joker is that well he says to Pyle, Pyle Joker is now your platoon leader, and essentially um, he's saying to uh, Joker, I've tried to. Um, to make this guy work. Yeah, yeah. Now it, now it's up to you. Yeah. And then late, 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 later on, he puts it on the entire uh, platoon to say, "I've, I've, I, I've, I've tried to, um, to, to make this this worthless, worthless sack into into a soldier. You as a platoon have failed to motivate him properly. Yeah. And so it falls on you. I have failed because you have not helped me. I think is the exact yeah. quote. And yeah, so there is, there's a moment where he sort of turns the, uh, turns the, the sort of the crowd on him. But there is something interesting in Hartman in, for example, his promotion of Joker to squad leader, to pick an example. Yeah. Where he respects Joker for almost standing up to him. Where he yeah. asks, do you believe in the Virgin Mary? And Joker says no. And he slaps him across the face. And he asks him the question again. And Joker says no. And he slaps him again. And he's like, do you believe now? And Joker's like... I cannot give an answer to this that won't make you hit me because if I reverse my opinion, you'll just lose all respect for me. And beat me further. Yeah. Beat me more. Yeah. And there's a moment where Hartman 
almost seems to recognize like Joker's ability in that and comes to respect him. Well, he absolutely yeah. does because he says like you, you've you've um, uh, you're you're tough and like tough is enough or, yeah. or something along those lines. So it's kind of interesting in sort of that respect how Hartman is not. Hartman's not a clear-cut villain, although you do get that wonderful black comedic moment. I think we both laughed out loud, where he compares, he basically cites the two greatest examples yeah. of U.S. Marine Corps riflemen who, you know, snipers, yes. are the famous bell tower shooter, shooter from Texas and Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, because Whit- Whitman, Whitman right, was the, the first. And, but, and the interesting thing about that is it's after... After he's given up on Pyle, after Joker has given up on Pyle, sorry, he gives up on Pyle, the platoon gives up on Pyle, and then Joker gives up on Pyle. And the the, the next scene is them just do, do, doing their, their, um, their march. And yeah. you can see on Pyle's face that it's he's a different, yeah. um, it's a different person. And you're seeing kind of like the person that he's become is a section eight, um, as they say in the movie, this is somebody who, who, um, gets a discharge on the grounds of psychiatric sort of dysfunction. Exactly. And the, 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 but the interesting thing is that it's, it starts to, what you start to see is you saw a little bit earlier on about, um, pile kind of coming through and crossing the obstacles because of his help from um joker from joker yeah but what has actually then happened is he's been entirely dehumanized yeah and he's suddenly become this fantastic soldier yeah and and, and i and mean it, even it, hartman compliments him on his shooting good yeah shooting, so we finally found something you can do right absolutely but it and it, you, you you see you see the the scene the scene as well after the whitman oswald scene where it shoots to like a kind of an approaching close-up shot of Pyle. Yeah. Where, where they're... Uh, As if to say, this saying, is, yeah. This yeah, is this what is this what process, we're going to make you. Yeah, this is what We're this going to make you a killer. To, yeah. The best in the world. Yeah. And I mean, there is a, there's a wonderful sense of like, I mean, even when Hartman gives out their assignments and announces that Pyle's going to general infantry. There's a sense of almost pride in there. Yeah. Um, despite but, the fact he, he inevitably becomes a different sort of killer. And you look at the scene in between where, sorry, we're, we're getting very forensic, but yeah. the, 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 this is how well constructed this, yeah. the, 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 film the, is. the film is. You look at the scene in between those. Um, uh, well, it's actually it's actually a couple back. But anyway, they, where where Pyle is the, the sort of teacher's pet, because you show Joker, he's asked, like, uh, what's your general order number six? And he can't quote it. And yeah. then he goes down the line gets um general order number five and yeah. asks pile about the the gun why he looks down the barrel in a wonderful like not only is that a nice sort of setting up how much pile knows foreshadowing how the relationship between hartman and pile will end is like why does your drill sergeant look down the barrel of a gun before he takes it to make sure the round is empty sir um but yeah so there's there's a nice bit there there's it's Absolutely. very well constructed and the kind of Chekhov's rifle, yeah, so to speak. Um, but there it's is not a gun. Yeah, there's there's a lot in there, and I mean, it's worth noting. Like D'Onofrio is fantastic in this role. Like I think D'Onofrio is really really great. This arguably is the role that defines 
D'Onofrio as an actor to the point where you could argue like his later career where for example he was the lead actor on was it Law and Order Criminal Intent for a couple of years where he played like a psychological profiler who was possibly psychologically unhinged or even like Kingpin in Daredevil where he smashes a guy's a guy's head in using a car door have all been in some ways like defined by his role as Pyle here. Interestingly enough, apparently Modine recommended uh, D'Onofrio for the role. I thought Modine was fantastic in this. I, I'm not really? a big fan of Modine in this movie, I have to say. I'm not a really? huge fan. I think he's grand. I think he's a little bit... He's meant to be bland. And I think he... I didn't really get much character from him. I get the sense that was what was intended. Uh, but I... I, 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 I would disagree quite strongly. I, 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 feel, I feel like like, like he... The funny thing about Modine is that he's giving the narration in a movie that up until the second half is about other people Kyle and Hartman. Hartman. Well, I mean, um, it, even in the opening scene where they're shaving people's heads, yeah, uh, Modine is buried in the middle of the montage. He's not the yeah. first. He's not the last. He's not even exactly in the middle. He's put in there so that you very clearly, if you weren't watching, looking for him, you wouldn't see him. Yeah, which but, is entirely intentional. Yeah, the the the, the, the I, I think the first person is Pyle. Yeah. yeah, which sort of gives you that sort of nice sort of centered um, sort of focusing the first half on Pyle, and I mean I think that a pile on, if you will. Uh, but Jesus, D'Onofrio um, famously he uh, he put on weight for the role, um, and he he, really? yeah, <laughs> he remarked that when he what? was. Yeah, when he was uh, when he had the weight on. And you mean he didn't have to lose weight to, to play this role. role? No, he didn't. Well, I mean, apparently Kubrick asked Modine if D'Onofrio would put on weight for the role, and Modine said sure, um, which I feel like sort of committed D'Onofrio to putting on weight for the role. But anyway, but D'Onofrio apparently, when he shaved his head and when he put on the weight, he found that people would say things to him twice. Because they assumed that he was not all there psychologically. Did that inform his performance at <laughs> yeah, all, I wonder? I wonder in any way. I mean, there, it doesn't seem... I don't think there's anything controversial in me suggesting that 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 the character Pyle is... May. Yeah, it, but before, any, before he's been breaking, broken down as a human being, he's, there, 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 there's... I don't think you could say strong suggestion, um, but <laughs> slight hint. Yeah, <laughs> like he, he that's that 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 this person has has um, well has special needs or or, or is low low um, IQ or maybe you know doesn't necessarily have a great deal of intelligence or awareness. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 um, I suppose the old-fashioned way of, 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 of saying it would be simple. Yes. Um, and, and, I th- that, and that's the way it's kind of portrayed in this movie. Yes. Is, is that he's simple. Yeah, and it's almost like an innocence about him because as you pointed out, he's introduced grinning like, you know, he's grinning with his teeth out and then Hartman's like, wipe that grin off your face. And he physically can't stop smiling despite the fact he knows the enormity of what's going on. Yeah, because uh, he's, he's, he's meant to be mentally a child. And, yeah. and uh, the, well, I mean, he's even, even Joker has to dress him. Yeah, he's doing up his buttons and the way that um, Pyle is looking at him. And the way that they're talking to each other. Yeah. It's like Pyle is like, I'm sorry, I can't do this. It's it's almost one of those, I'm sorry, I can't actually physically do this thing scene that you get in, in movies with people with disabilities. Where you have the inevitable moment where a character sort of articulates the fact that they feel handicapped or sort of disabled by their, you know, by their inability to perform sort of tasks like this. 
and yeah. it's in the middle of the film because it's it's and Joker gives that sort of quiet, like subdued non-response where he's like, "You have to try," well, but he it, can't look him in the eye. It, it, what makes it a great performance is that he doesn't go full simple Jack. <laughs> yeah, you never go full simple Jack. Uh, but yeah, and and D'Onofrio is really really good in that, and I think. It works very, very well because it makes the point the movie's trying to make, which is that, you know, you are transforming human beings into killing machines. You're basically yeah. stripping out anything that resembles human decency to them. And So, Arlie Ar- Army does a, a great job, yeah. basically, of, of, <laughs> of creating the, the kind of killing machine um, that but, you can then send to uh, Vietnam. Vietnam. It's just that he overdid it. He doesn't. He doesn't wind the clock properly. He sets the alarm about six hours early. Unfortunately, yeah, and or, uh, for 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 three minutes rather than six. Yeah, a uh, like golden eye. But I do love. I actually love the the scene where you know Pyle is in the bathroom with the rifle with the gun. Um, and Orly Ermy arrives, or we should stop calling him Orly Ermy because he's the fictional character Hartman. But Hartman arrives, and Hartman's like, uh, you know, there's a moment where Hartman is almost tender, as tender as is physically possible for Hartman to be, where he's like, put the rifle down on the ground and back away, son. Which is like, you feel like it's the closest thing that Hartman has done to acknowledging Pyle as like a fellow human being in the entire I think course of the movie. You should just recognize that, that Pyle is. Um, a uh, section eight, and that whatever happens here, uh, pile is about to be the de- uh, discharge. Yeah. So it's no longer a a a, a sort of um, the 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 professional relationship has changed. <laughs> has been severed. Yeah. And so I- it, it's 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 kind of and and then and then he he kind of takes a change of tack. Yeah. When it doesn't work, he gives it about I think ten seconds, if even. And he's like, okay, fine. We did it. We tried nice way. Now it's, what is your major malfunction? Yeah, because it, it's, it, it, I, I suppose this, it, it feels like almost calculated be, 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 because it's kind of like, okay, I'll go back to his programming. That's it, exactly. Um, it feels like it's almost meant to evoke muscle memory from Pyle. Yeah. Like he's counting on like the drilling that he's instilled in Pyle to override whatever the hell is going on, this sort of blue screen of literal death that has washed over Pyle and like to assume that he will follow the instructions that he's given. And it's kind of ironic because Hartman is in some ways responding to this situation in the only way that he's been trained to rather than responding to it as a human being would. Well, I, I don't know. Like, it, it, I feel like in that scene, Hartman is, is trying to uh, manage uh, an unmanageable yeah, situation. situation. And, and like the, the, the only kind of, um, I guess the the um, it wouldn't have really made for a very good movie if he had been like Joker, uh, s- slowly walk <laughs> towards uh, me. Uh, walk towards me. Uh, we we're going to be back in a second. Uh, p- pile. You just you just stay there. Take it easy. Yeah, take yeah. a load off. All I, right, everyone out. <laughs> yeah, very calm evacuation. Yeah, I do. I do like it's. It not... seems to be the like the the. I suppose. I, sorry, I was gonna say. I. It's not quite. You know, gentlemen, you can't fight in here. It's the war room level of wordplay. But I do like that when Hartman arrives and sees Joker and Pile sitting in the bathroom with the rifle, Pile having gone off the psychological deep end. Hartman's first response is, what are you animals doing in my head? 
um, <laughs> given that he spent the entire movie getting inside his own recruits' heads and trying to program them and turn them into killing machines. Hey. I know, I quite like that. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot there and it works really, really well. And the drill sequences are fantastic. Like They're it, so good. And I mean, it, it's all because, I think that's because of Kubrick's sort of very careful framing and stuff. And there's a lot of... One of the inter- we'll talk a little bit then about the sort of the bridge between the first and the second halves because like one of the things that he does really well in the first half is he keeps the camera the camera tends to retreat and move away so if you think about for example the scenes where Hartman is moving through the barracks and the camera is basically pushing away from him as he approaches and as he walks or when you think about when they're out running and drilling with the flag the camera sort of pulling back from them keeping pace with them there's a sense of like the camera moving away from the action in the first half. And then in the second half, you get that sort of Kubrickian symmetry that we talked about. We did Barry Lyndon with When Irish Eyes Are Watching, which is where you have the exact opposite approach, where the camera tends to push in, where instead of pulling out from the characters' fronts, it pushes in on their backs as they're moving. It follows the tanks as they're driving through. It follows, and there's, the... and there's a lot of pan as yeah. well. And there, there's even a point where um, the because there, there's there's a filming inside a film. Yeah. Where 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 the um, the movie camera is moving along with the with the yeah. um, with the camera that we're watching the film through yeah and it's sort of tracking along it's this wonderful long tracking shot of the the tanks firing and the soldiers sort of you hiding. can imagine there's like three people. <laughs> On um, cameras, uh, yeah, like, the documentary like, filmmaker, the behind-the-scenes filmmaker is there behind. <laughs> yeah, and 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 behind those, there's there's three, and yeah, yeah. Before we move on, is there anything else that you want to say about Paris Island? Actually, because I feel like it's a nice sort of symmetrical break. Almost, we might talk about the two and how they relate to one another, but in terms of just Paris Island as a section of film of itself, um, no, no, I like. I feel like you, you. And to really appreciate this, you're not really you're 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 uh, the be- the the best way to appreciate it is 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 to is to is to just watch the which I'm sure our listeners have the the the, the um because all of those lines we can't do justice to no we can't um, yeah because Har- yeah but Herbie's they're, they're delivery is just a the the um and they they and they all you're 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 quite right that they became sort of playground um taunts and stuff yeah, as well. Like I mean you, well, I, you um well, there's something to talk about when we talk about surf a golf ball through a garden hose and all all, all of these sorts of um homophobic sort of uh, yeah, yeah things that I, 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 I would have heard said to me a lot <laughs> well, I mean but that's that's the thing I feel a lot of empathy for Pyle watching him try and navigate the obstacle course you went it, full Pyle <laughs> We don't talk about that. They sealed the records. But um, no, because they had... um, The sequence where he has to do the training always reminded me of PE. Because I was one of those kids. I'm I'm still not very good at physical education. Darren, you're you're comparing (laughs) your experience (laughs) with this? (laughs) That's a fair point. But there is like... There's the wonderful like Indiana Jones shot. God, I really felt so sorry for you when you were forced to do PE. To be clear, Darren, I never had any sympathy for kids who were forced to do PE. I wasn't very good at PE, but I, but I, I, I was always like, I always had a bad asthma as a child, so I couldn't run like a, a half a lap. And then becoming a teenager and realizing that there were kids who thought they were too cool to exercise, or, or uh, <laughs> was, was 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 just really. Um, I don't know. It 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 it, it always seemed. I um, I know there's going to be lots of people maybe 
um, who would disagree with me on this, but it's 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 this this uh, weird weird sort of um, I don't know. Don't it, say the word snowflake. <laughs> snowflakery <laughs> private snowflakery if you will yeah no it's snowball apologies but yeah no and, and and even the sequence i love the indiana jones sequence of them training yeah. as well which is the, the people who don't try are the people uh, like no it's not they, it's not not trying it's i'm they, happy to try it's being forced to you like relive the humiliation pile, pile of failure pile is doing his best yeah that's it exactly and then being forced to relive the fact that your best isn't good enough over and over I mean, you could argue that he shouldn't have enlisted or whatever, because this would have been before they drafted, because this is before the tech offensive. So he did enlist. But part of me sort of wonders, like, it's it's just... It, anyway, never mind. I'm projecting my own secondary school experience of being made to do PE. It doesn't help that Hartman refers to see, PT as a verb. You, I will PT the hell out of you. Made to do PE. You, you, you never talk about being made to do geography. That's a fair point. Um, like you were, you were so uh, sorry. Anyway, the, no. the, 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 it's a, it, it's always seemed like a weird thing for me. The, 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 yeah. Anyway, sorry. I think it's more that it was just outside the academic sort of purview of what people deem school to be. I think is why why people felt so strongly about PE. Right. And when I say people, I mean me. Yeah. Because um, I, I, I think part of it is like only stupid people exercise. Hey. <laughs> Did she? Wow, talk about projecting onto me there. Like, <laughs> that is not my position. That never was my position. Well, you said this privately, but yeah. as soon as the, as the, soon microphone, as the microphone starts going, yeah. Darren starts distancing himself from the remarks. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, was, we, we've gone on a... On a bit of a tangent. <laughs> yeah. now, okay, just to be clear, um, I never said that. But you can't be a nerd and a jock. <laughs> At the same time. No. Um, okay, it was it was more the physical humiliation. It was like watching... If I'm pop- going to belong, I've got to decide who I'm going to Which belong to first. Part yeah. No, but I mean, it was a lot of empathy for the moment where Pyle is like jumping up and trying to do one push-up and can't. He and- could totally have done ten, Darren. <laughs> You're a, 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 a physical specimen. You you can run faster than anyone who doesn't ever run can. <laughs> um, but like, only when the situation calls for it. Yeah, yeah. You you were you were born to be some kind of uh, athlete. I, I I think or like a boxer <laughs> maybe. But but you just don't 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 have any kind of um, interest, interest in it. <laughs> That's where the frustration comes from. Darren. From Andrew's point of view. <laughs> Like, like, like watching somebody who's been gifted with yeah, this natural talent exactly. just throw it away. I, I had to fuck. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I had to. I had to kind of like try and try and try and try. I had to like I I was never physically gifted. I had to kind of you know work work to try and be good at certain sports, and still am not good. <laughs> you could probably go and be good. No, no, I couldn't. But let's let's talk a little bit then about the it's second a half. Weird place. It's really hard. <laughs> um, let's talk about the second half of the film. I just discovered it's more an issue with me. <laughs> <laughs> a boomerang issue. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I feel like that, that gives the argument a nice sense of symmetry. Much like the film, ha ha ha. Because we talked a little bit, when we talked about Barry Lyndon, we talked about symmetry being a Kubrickian sort of fascination. You can see it even physically in the way that he shoots the scene, the scenes in the barracks with Hartman, where Hartman's walking, and you have the pillars that are symmetrical, you have the soldiers lined up who are symmetrical, and you have this sort of structure that's imposed. And even within the film itself, the two halves, as much as the second half is 
derided or or as much as it's sort of looked down on as not being as good as, as the first one. And I think that's you're right that that's because of the absence of people like Hartman or Pyle. Having said that, I think Joker gets a lot more funny lines in the second half because he like like in 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 the first half like he he tries to crack wise and gets like a crack in the ribs yeah. basically and it, whereas in 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 the second half the 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 same sorts of hierarchies uh don't exist i remember speaking to my brother about this recently about when 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 you're training to be an an officer say because like, like a lot of the kind of soldiers here are like lieutenants and that sort of thing. You have these, uh, uh, I guess, non-commissioned offer, officers. Um, uh, like, you, you know, they're yeah. they're in, in, in charge of you and you're kind of like, um, what's the word? Training sort to outrank them, them to, yeah. to, 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 to them, yeah. Even though at the end of the process you will yeah. be outranking them, yeah? Yeah, we're, yeah we're in, and, and then, and then you, you, you arrive in Vietnam and all of a sudden, like, sorry, in the movie, they arrive in Vietnam. <laughs> I, I like that when, you, you know, you, you, you take me to task for saying stuff like, you know, our history or <laughs> our movies or foreign films. Andrew's like, but when you arrive in Vietnam. <laughs> when you, Darren. Yeah, personally. Arrive in Vietnam. <laughs> in 1968. Yeah. But, yeah, that, 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 that it's kind of, um, there isn't the same um, obvious... Like that, at no point does does anyone dress down Joker the way they do in 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 the first half. There are yeah. degrees to which they do. Yeah, but there's I mean, also his a... editor and the guy at the gravesite. They yeah. they give him a bit of flack, but it, nobody punches him in the ribs or slaps him across the face or yeah. even makes colorful euphemisms about his sexuality. There's a sense in which they've kind of been leveled out by having gone through basic training. Yeah. Um, that they've now earned the right to be uh, treated as something approaching de- a human being, dehumanized, yeah. uh, kind of, yeah, um, soldiers, sounds... yeah. But I mean, and, and there is this sort of sense of he's an actual marine now, yeah. And and there is a sense of like symmetry that runs through, like Kubrick's very consciously paralleling the two halves, and they very clearly, like for example, they you know obviously you can parallel certain characters between the two. So for example. Animal uh, Lover is very clearly meant to be uh, what Pyle would be if Pyle had not committed suicide. Because there's also a sense that he's simple, psychologically speaking, particularly in his interactions and stuff like that. You have very sort of clear parallels with, like, the birthday party for the dead Viet Cong mirroring the birthday party that they they throw for Jesus Christ. Yeah. You have, for example, the discussion of people who are supposed to be sectioned eight before something horrific happened. So, for example, you have Joker telling Cowboy about Pyle's potential section eight, but not getting the warning out in time compared with Cowboy telling Joker about Handjob's potential section eight, which didn't get him out in time either. You have even, like... Even Orly Ermey's one-liners get a sense of symmetry. So, for example, in the first half, you have, uh, you know, suck a golf ball through a garden hose. And in the second half, you have suck the chrome off a trailer hitch and that sort of stuff. You even have, like, the way that uh, Joker has internalized, like, Piles, uh, sorry, sorry, internalized Hartman's um, sort of rhetoric, where Hartman's talking about, you know, you will not have dreams of Mary Jane Rottencrotch. And then at the end, you have Joker talking about how he dreams of Mary Jane Rottencrotch. There's a sense that, like, there is a sense of overlaid and structure. I mean, 
you could argue one of the more uncomfortable examples of that is the obvious parallel of Eight Ball and Snowball, who are the two black characters who appear in the film, but who are named in such a way as suggests symmetry, which is a little unfortunate, but also plays into that theme. Yeah, and then there, there's probably a suggestion that um, that they've that they've both been given those names for for racial reasons. But yeah. Orly Army is a bit more clever <laughs> in, 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 in the way instructor. he applies. Yeah, yeah. eight balls seem a bit on the nose. Yeah, to be honest. Yeah, uh, snowball at least has the benefit of irony. Yeah, it's it's like that reach around joke. It's a, it's an insult that works on two levels. It's like you think this guy is just a bigot, but actually he's drawing attention to the bigotry that's intrinsic in the U.S. So Marine this Corps. This is a good insult, but it needs a button. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> like um, I'm going to use the 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 rule of three <laughs> uh, to, to set up payoff. I yeah. do like the idea that when Pyle was like committing suicide in the head, Hartman was sitting there working on his insults for the following day. He's just woken up, so he's gonna kind of. Probably have um, just whatever has been running around in his head, like in his dreams. Yeah, just sort of run with that as well. But there is a sense that his his his, his evening journaling. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know that uh, Modine's diaries. Morning pages. Modine. Sorry. Oh yeah, Modine's Mo- the Modine journals. Yes, uh, which we talked about, which are the, the full metal diary. jacket diaries, uh, which they were. And there's actually an app for it. I don't know if it's still available, but you can buy an app that narrates um, that has like your life. Well, narrates his experience of making the film. But he ah. was inspired by the fact that Joker would be narrating the film. Is, and... it, is it a lot like uh, P.E. <laughs> in secondary school? Um, but he, men- he may or may not mention that comparison. But there is a sense that, like, as much as the second half is derided, they are, they're not two separate films. They're two halves of the same film. And, they, like, you can tell because they build to... They both build the same idea, which is this idea of mercy killing, where Pyle basically mercy kills himself rather than go off to Vietnam or rather than like become a soldier or a proper killing machine. He kills Hartman and he kills himself. And you have then at the very end Joker, who has spent the entire movie like trying to be a pacifist and avoiding killing despite being flippant and ironic and wry about death and destruction, who has made a conscious effort and choice not to murder people and to try and to protect the people around him, like, uh, is it Ratchet Man or Raffleman from killing people, is forced to take a life in order to protect or in order to help the person whose life he's taking. Um, and you have this sort of wonderful, bitter, twisted irony there. And the, the, I really enjoyed... Just going back to first half, second half, it's the most jarring transition in in all of cinema. Because it feels like the projectionist has changed reels. Yeah, and that it is a different film. Because the first half of the movie ends with 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 pile and by the way he's sitting on a toilet yeah with 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 it with his with his head like blown off blown off with, Hartman with, with blood the hole kind in of his dripping chest, down yeah. there and then all of a sudden it's um cut to it, black these boots very, are made for walking yeah but there's a big solid cut to black in the middle as well and it's not like for example Barry Lyndon where Barry Lyndon has its clear part 1 and part 2 like title cards yeah. and stuff and an intermission between them this just has a cut to black and then all of a sudden you've transitioned from like the cold sterile barracks to 
you know, Vietnam several years later because, like, um, you can tell that Joker's grown his hair back, for example, and you get this... Maybe as you point, several months later. Okay, well, it is a while later anyway because his hair has grown back fully. It takes yeah. you almost... I a, think they're only three months uh, on tour, but yeah, no, it could... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it could have been a while before they were deployed. It takes you a moment anyway to realise that it's it's him, almost, uh, because you've seen him bald and shaved for most of the movie to this point. And even then, the camera's moving in a different way. The, the opening yeah. shot in the second half is and tracking the prostitute. Yeah, yeah. You 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 have you have this uh, colorfully uh, dressed Vietnamese hooker, where you've you the first half of the movie you no women uh, yeah. at all, um, and very little color outside of the the greens, the oranges, the beiges, the browns. And you're and out. You're no longer in an institution. This is like a kind of a bustling. It's uh, a street. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the one of the first things that happens is they get, you know, propositioned by a prostitute and then robbed by a, a street, you know, street urchin who can do Kung Fu. Like it's all of a sudden it's like the entire world is come bustling. What? Can he though? That's a question. He does, probably... he, does he know how to, <laughs> yeah, how to do a pose? Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Has he seen kind of some a Bruce Lee Hong movie? Kong, yeah, action um, movie. But there is, and and you're right, there is, and there's. Um... But I I I love um, I love Joker's uh, kind of um, glib uh, uh, flipping uh, comments, and and I I. I, I um, I really in, in, enjoyed them, and maybe that just says a lot about me. Um, that I, that I, I, I I've been given out to before for being uh, too uh, flippant, flippant, glib, irreverent. I love his his reaction to the Tet offensive because um, his, his 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 CEO is 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 saying. Um, uh, this is serious business. Uh, Saigon has fallen. The the, the U.S. The, embassy the U- has been US embassy by Suicide has, Squad. Has been taken by Suicide Squad. Never Harley like, Quinn is there oh, with a hammer. Oh God! And 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 then uh, Joker's reaction is: Does this mean Anne Margaret's not coming? Yeah. Which is hilarious because Anne, Anne Anne Margaret's like the the kind of. Uh, um, Swedish kind of uh, actress ingenue who is obviously <laughs> like coming over as part uh, of the um, what do you call it? Is the ISO or the um, but basically uh, the army sort of show business? Yeah, corpse, yeah. Like corpse where around. where it's like bye bye birdie, <laughs> as opposed to the other bird song that we hear yeah. over the course of the film. But <laughs> I mean, true. and the, I that that's what I really what I was saying earlier. That I appreciate about this movie is that it 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 can it can really make you it can it can really give you like a. a a gut punch, but also like has has that wry, uh, dark sense of humor beneath it as well. Yeah, which is great. And 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 when they're going around doing the the interviews with all of the, the different soldiers, because because like the 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 whole purpose of these interviews is to take back good stories to and tell the people at home. Yeah. And it's just like I think we're 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 killing the wrong Vietnamese. They're saying, <laughs> yeah. and it's like these guys were helping. I keep on seeing them going the other way. Yeah. And they're basically saying you should like, bomb uh, all of North Vietnam. That would send a right message. Um, yeah, and the the it's 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 hilarious. And and and, and then you've uh, Joker, just, Joker yeah. saying like I, I wanted to to go to um, like Vietnam, experience the exciting, culture. Yeah, ancient and in culture. the background you can see like the wreck of the city that they've just yeah, destroyed. The cinema that's become that will become like the brothel basically. Yeah, prostitute comes to visit. But I mean, it's it's funny you should mention. And again, it's interesting that like Full Metal Jacket takes us both back to school 
in a weird way and sort of like the memory of the taunts and stuff. Because when you say that you have a fondness for Joker and you sort of, you, you can be, have been accused of being flippant yourself. I remember when we were in school together in second year, I believe it was, when we had Irish together and we had a certain teacher who was very much trying to be Drill Sergeant Hartman. And I remember the exact exchange where he was like, I want you all to tell me where you're from. It's like, okay, I'm Darren Mooney, I'm from 104. I'm, you know, Nicola Gallagher, I'm from 103. Uh, I'm, you know, Andrew Quinn. And he's like, where, where are you from, Andrew? And your response was, Belsadere? It's like, oh, we've got a comedian, have we? And that sort of reminded me a bit of Joker's, oh, we got a, we got a comedian, have we? Uh, except he didn't punch you in the gut. I think that you beat your Colonel Hartman, from what I remember, or Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, from what I remember of the experience. I think so. He, yeah, no, that, that, and I, I, like, I sometimes feel bad look, 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 looking back because of a hard time that we gave our teachers. I don't think I was, I was ever as like witty as as as, as Joker is in this movie. But I remember yeah. one particular time when um, he just um, went 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 off on me. Because I, I, it was something like um, he had told me like once or twice to take out my books or something, yeah. and everyone else had and I hadn't, and I think I don't think I actually had them, and I was hoping he would forget, <laughs> um, and and then he he absolutely he loses it, yeah, and uh, starts going off on one, and I decide like I'm gonna let him finish. <laughs> and then he concludes, and I say, uh, "Sir," and he's like, "Yes." It's like, your fly is open, your shirt is hanging out. <laughs> well played, Andrew, well played. Um, but yeah, <laughs> and, 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 the, 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 That gave me so much joy. <laughs> and you, I, I suspect, like, I can see why you have a strong attachment to Joker. Because he does, even in the first half, although obviously he's in the background and he's sort of, he's suppressed by Hartman and stuff like that, he still has that wry and cynical point of view going on. Like, he's, like there's a certain amount of kind of, uh, like... Um, because he is, um, he is not, he is not excusing himself from the system or from the war, but he is also um, kind of uh, ref- refusing to, to I guess, accept authority in certain kind of um, ways. Yeah, when, and 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 with 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 a certain amount of kind of. Um, you could say courageousness, or you could say that he's just a smartass. But but he he's he's saying these things to the people who 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 can punish him. Yeah, you know, and 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 he he doesn't he he's he's very kind of um, he has a lot of integrity, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, and I think that that's fair, and I think that like one of the things that is striking about Joker, because he he does articulate the kind of theme of the movie almost where you know when they find the dead bodies of the Vietnamese sort of sympathizers being killed by the Viet Cong you have the general coming over and asking you know you wear a, a peace sign on your lapel and you have born to kill on your helmet what are you trying to say son and he's like uh, I guess I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man uh, but <laughs> exactly I mean, the, the, you know sir the Jungian thing yeah. <laughs> which is brilliant it's a brilliant line I, 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 love, I love the scene just before that where they're 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 talking to um at 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 that moment he's the kind of ranking officer there um and he's like oh uh, cowboy oh, superior is yeah he, and and he's like oh sorry you're 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 from stars and stripes yeah. and he starts like smiling for the camera every now and then and, and giving and, his life story and introducing yeah. himself properly because and it's 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 an hilarious scene yeah there's a lot and, but it's 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 shot 
in the kind of foreground of these 20 um, dead um, Vietnamese people. Who, yeah, who, covered in lime. And stuff. Yeah, who've been killed um, well, that's one of for the... um, kind of... Collaborating uh, in some way. Collaborating. They've been taken to be politically re-educated and instead murdered. And which, of course, ironically, so is, is, cleaner. is juxtaposed with, like, the political re-education that arguably the Americans have been receiving in their basic training. Yeah. Where they've all been, again, born to kill or sort of... Whereas it, it's... There's the great line from um, from Hartman where he's talking about how you will be reborn again hard um, and sort of remade. And it's the hard heart that kills. And this whole process... And he of, talks about... He, sorry. He, no, he, he talks about Pyle being reborn yeah. as well. And there is this sort of, like... And there's a sense that... In some ways, that's mirrored in those dead Vietnamese because you then have that line from, um, obviously, from Joker where he's talking about the dead know only one thing. It's better to be alive. Yeah. And you have this sort of idea that, you know, is is Joker is technically and clinically alive. And in fact, actually, one of the interesting things is, according to Modine, the early drafts of the story had planned to kill off Joker at the end. But Kubrick thought and decided finally that it was more tragic to have him live. Like, to have him live in inverted commas, in a sense of, like, to have to carry with him everything that had happened. I don't like those, um, yes, I'm narrating the uh, story, but I'm dead, you see. Dead, <laughs> I tell you. I'm that speaking to you from the grave. From beyond the grave. Well, I mean, that yeah, also... they, they did that um, in the Cray Brothers movie, didn't they? Yes. Um, and they, they, again, one senses that wouldn't be a twist that Kubrick would be particularly fond of, given his recurring suggestion that, you know... Everybody is now six feet under and equal uh, in Barry Lyndon. And, yeah. and even here, there's the discussion about how the only thing the dead know is that it's better to be alive. So I, th- I think, but I think that there is something in the idea that Joker, you know, has been metaphorically and spiritually killed and reborn. Um, and that's sort of like contrasted. And you yeah, have that even. I, I mean, but it, like the, the fact, the fact that he's held on to something of himself, like he's still in a certain, to a certain degree, the same. Uh, irreverent, flippant. Is he? I think at the end it, it suggests well, that he's not. At the very end, yeah, when, yeah. when, 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 after he's killed the sniper, when he's joining in singing the, the Mickey Mouse theme, and when he's talking about how he dreams of Mary Jane Rottencrotch. Like I, I think, I, I, I think I, he's I, given himself over at that point. I don't. I don't think so. Right. No, and 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 I don't think there's enough of the movie to draw uh, at that a point strong, to draw enough of a conclusion. A strong conclusion. Yeah. I mean, if we want to talk then briefly... The fact that they're singing um, the, the Mickey, Mickey Mouse tune doesn't fantastic. seem to really um, uh, strongly imply that that <laughs> that he's lost his sense of humour. But... Um, well, I think it's more to suggest the sort of irony of, like, the Americans, sort of, the Americans abroad, almost. The um, sort of the, the theme of, like, imperialism, almost, or sort of, like, involvement overseas or spreading the American empire. It has that sort of because I mean even Pyle like Pyle is a reference to the uh, the character he was who was he was it the Andy Dick show he was a supporting character in and then he got his own um, TV Andy show Dick no Andy Dick's apologies the um, Pyle was a uh, yeah it was the Andy Griffith show apologies Andy Griffith yeah not Andy Dick's that would that would be a, an unfortunate mistake ah uh, Gomer Pyle from the Andy Griffith show he got his own spin off uh, in which he played um, a a recruit in the army. So you got that sort of like pop cultural reference sort of seeping through the film. Oh, yeah. And I mean this and I think that's an intentional sort of like drawing attention to 
the Americanization. Because there's a, yeah, when, you, when when they're panning over, it's kind of like, oh, I'm John Wayne, I'm General Custer, I'm like all of these kind of American icons. Yeah, I mean, and then obviously Joker's John Wayne impression, and you get the dueling John Wayne impressions at various points in the in the film and stuff like that, and you get archetypes like cowboy, for example, and, and yeah. all this sort of stuff. I mean, even the, as you pointed out, the stars and stripes thing where they're doing the propaganda pieces. Yeah, um, even, where where they they have two stories that they run yeah which is one, of, one of them is um the 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 private who's giving his his half his, his, salary. Half his salary to 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 the south vietnamese to uh, buy civilians paste and, yeah and, yeah. Sort of and then there's the one where 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 they're getting a confirmed kill yeah and winning the war so they're winning hearts and minds and winning the war yeah and there's a sense in the film of that because it's telling that like the film is set during or in the immediate like in the immediate vicinity and aftermath of the the obviously the Tet Offensive. Yeah. Which is generally regarded as the point at which American opinion changes. And his uh, CO, his commanding officer oh, yeah. at the newspaper like talks, Walter Cronkite. E- even Walter Cronkite will be turning against us after this. And there is that sense of like narrativizing and having that sort of like national myth and stuff like that. Like I mean there's one of the guys who's like they don't even have horses here. I mean what what's the deal with that? And there there's um that kind of is contrasted with with um I think it's Cowboy saying um he talks about having anyone around that's worth shooting. Yeah. Or maybe it's not Cowboy. But there there no it isn't. It isn't Cowboy. It's um it's somebody else talking about the, the Oh the dead y- Vietnamese guy, yeah, 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 the birthday party. Yeah. He's talking about how how uh, when they go home. Yeah. And there's there's a sense in which they're 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 arriving in this country with this fantastic old proud culture and these these people who who who've proudly fought off the French and the Japanese and now um are are having to fight off the Americans and are 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 just kind of in their minds fight, fighting for the same sort of freedom that America thinks they're bringing. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's the great line where, you know, animal lovers, you know, where, where cowboy says, you know, they died for freedom. And cowboy lovers like, that's, freedom's just a word. It's, there's not freedom here. This is a slaughterhouse. I'd rather fight for boondang. Thank you very much. Yeah. We did one, one of, one of, um, one of his, his, his many wise aphorisms. <laughs> yes, which we can quote for, uh, and which is one book for the of ages. Proverbs. Yes, sadly, Animal Lover hasn't quite become the enduring figure that Colonel, that sorry, Gunnery Sergeant Hartman was. Yeah. But I mean, he, he's, he's, he's a much, um, like, uh, he's a much less, like, like you compare, you compare him, I guess, kind of like to mirror, mirroring, uh, pile. Pile. They say that, it, like, he 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 is he is a horrible human being, but it's kind of like implied with a heart of gold. If, if <laughs> only he, everyone, if only someone would throw grenades at him for the rest of his life, we'd be all set. In, but he's in normal one. context, he's 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 like skipping his turn to take a prostitute, um, <laughs> and and isn't going to even have it um, start with any foreplay, which which just. Uh, what a considerate guy we have here. I mean, we'll, we'll talk a bit about the prostitutes uh, in a second. But just... <laughs> in the prostitute zone. The, 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 <laughs> our regular segment. Yeah. Where well, we I mean... talk about prostitutes in movies. <laughs> yeah, the, the um, inappropriate smoking the entire country, apparently. You know what? This film was shot uh, all in England, um, which is interesting, because that's perhaps something what? that... Yeah. Um, they actually imported uh, those palm trees that they use in the scenes there. 
They shot them all in England. The sequence was... He was afraid to leave England in case he'd be murdered by the IRA, is it? <laughs> well, also, he was allegedly Sorry, afraid of flying. Sorry, call back to yeah. Barry Lyndon in case people are like, what is he talking about? <laughs> yeah, Kubrick uh, was threatened by the IRA uh, while shooting Barry Lyndon. But he was also apparently afraid to fly as well. So he uh, he arranged to shoot as much of this as possible in, in Britain. And in fact, he shot... A lot of eyes wide shot in in Britain as well because he shot the the city scenes. Well, on that feels sets. like you could sh- shoot a lot of that movie on. It looks like a movie a that's been made set. in a set. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, but the thing is here, in fact, and this is the thing. I I, I wonder if this maybe bleeds into something that I, that one of my minor issues with the film is that it doesn't feel like Southeast Asia uh, in terms of you know when I when I've been to the region or whatever. Um, it doesn't have that same, or even when you watch it in film, you see stuff like Platoon, for example, or Apocalypse Now. It doesn't have that sort of like sweaty, humid texture that it has. Like, I mean, obviously they import the oh. palm trees. They've got all the military equipment. The attention. I you were going to say that the 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 prostitutes are way off. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that later. But um, <laughs> it's not accurate. Yeah, just completely inaccurate. From my experience, sorry. Yeah, from what I know of the uh, of the region sex trade. But no, I mean the um, they famously. One of the reasons that the film... The film was a nightmare to shoot. Um, it took forever to shoot. Um, What's the common denominator <laughs> in, in all these nightmare <laughs> shoots? Yeah. Uh, is this one of those things where you're t- asking Stanley Kubrick, like, you know, if you meet one asshole, he's probably an <laughs> asshole. But if everybody you meet all day is an asshole, well then. So if you have one movie with a troubled shoot... Um, but there is apparently... The issue was... And this is according to Adam Baldwin, has said that Kubrick... Because he was shooting in Britain, he could only find the right light at certain times. So he'd only have an hour or maybe 40 minutes worth of shooting in a day where he could make it convincingly look like Vietnam. So the shoot went on for like three months longer than it really should have. Because Versus if he had went to somewhere in, in, in like, Asia. yeah, or in the, in the, at least in the tropics yeah. during the dry season. Yeah. But cause they actually you would had have, to have like most of the day. Yeah, they had to have heaters installed because there were certain points where you could see the actor's breath while they were shooting, for example. Um, and there's a lot of that in there, and a lot of the cloudy, overcast sky, which isn't necessarily what you would associate with the region. Now I know that obviously you have rainy seasons and stuff like that, but it kind of hangs over the production. Although they did, they did find a gigantic uh, former, I think it was a steel mill. That they could convert for the final sequence. That they could literally blow up. They could use architect. They could like demolish these structures and make them look like they've been shelled and bombed and stuff. So that I, like I I found it convincing, but the in like this happens over a very short time. So in 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 there's no sense of there being like a montage between the like the dry season and the wet season. I know yeah. what you're saying about kind of like. It, it 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 feeling it, it, like having that Vietnam kind of muggy yeah. thing that you have like in Platoon and the sort of sticky and insects and, and yeah yeah and that sort of thing. But I I feel like because it takes place just over kind of like a short period from like I guess December to January, it like you maybe get away with that. Yeah, I mean, there's a great line here about Kubrick's biggest problem being that he couldn't find convincing rocks. Um, that you couldn't make a convincing rock. It's, there's some innate quality of a rock that when you ask your art department to come up with a dozen rocks, they don't look like actual rocks. But none of this really felt like it was on a set at all. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there was... There was the, the, it was the British gas, sorry, it was a British gas uh, facility near London. I think it was Brexton or somewhere like that. 
But basically, they they got a record. Brexton. Brexton. No, does that make sense? Is that a place with an I? E. Brexton. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought you were like uh, inexplicably uh, <laughs> pronunciation Brixton. Uh, no, I was not. Uh, I was not mispronouncing. Thank you very much. But uh, let me just check now, listeners. I have a theory. What is your theory? <laughs> the, the, Baron can't read good. The, no, it's you can you can read very well. It's actually a sign of of of, of somebody who's 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 um exceptionally well read that that they're uh consistently <laughs> mispronouncing things but i also think there's a part of your brain missing but mostly it's because you're very well read uh, <laughs> part of my brain is just like what's the most interesting way to make these letters uh produce a sound uh but yeah apparently like kubrick was as you might imagine fiercely controlling about the film he would tour the cinemas that were going to show full metal jacket why though <laughs> to make sure that they were up to scratch Seems like a fun guy. He really does. Well, I mean, and he was because, and when he was asked about it, he was like, "Look, if you were producing a movie, would you want it shown in a crap hole?" Well, I'm not insane. So, um, <laughs> Touche. Might be the response that people would have. Um, it was apparently the production. I was, can be eccentric sometimes, but I'm no Stanley Kubrick. Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> but the um, the argument is apparently like the film took so long to get made, right? That Oliver Stone. Right when he green when he wanted to make Platoon, he went into I think it was Paramount, right. and he said Stanley Kubrick has been working on this Full Metal Jacket movie for like three months. He's demonstrating that there's a market for Vietnam movies. If you give me the green light to make Platoon, we could be out like six months after them, and we'd sort of ride that wave. As it turned out, Platoon was released six months beforehand um, and <laughs> swept all the Oscars. Um, yeah, there's, there's, it, it was a famously, famously troubled production for all involved. Like Modine tells a story, for example, where Kubrick got himself locked in a, in a, an outhouse and had to use a radio to direct Modine to get him out of it. And the, the, um, he says, no, like, I come, uh, I'm locked in a, I'm locked in an outhouse. It's got, oh, it's going to take at least 20 minutes. Bring the tank! There, no, there's no tanks available. I'm sorry. Um, you're going to have to fight your way out. But uh, I did promise that we would come back to the prostitutes. Prostitute time. So Darren and Darren is a man of his word. But when it comes to prostitutes, it's interesting how the film repeatedly and consciously subsumes sexuality into violence. And you have it in the opening half of the film where, for example, they're told to sleep with their rifles, to give their rifles women's names, where Hartman tells them they will no longer dream of Mary Jane Rottencrotch, who is getting a lot of shout outs in this podcast. Good for you, Mary Jane. She was, she was like, like the Anne Margaret. Of. <laughs> <laughs> she was the Anne Margaret of Hartman's drill instructions. But there is, uh, and then obviously later on, it's interesting that most of the Vietnamese interactions that the characters have are with female Vietnamese characters or primarily involving female Vietnamese characters. So, for example, the two prostitutes. And the sniper. Yeah. Uh, and the sniper is a, is a woman as well. And I wonder if Kubrick is very consciously or was consciously making a connection there in the idea that you have, obviously, the two Freudian drives of, like, Eros and Thanatos, you know, death and obviously. sex. I mean... We all know that. Okay. Darren... I like, that, I like that I'm the Freudian guy on this podcast. Darren's like, let's... Let's 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 get real. Let's talk Freud. Blue penis. Yeah, uh, floating. No, no, it's a it's a big gray penis floating in a big blue vagina. 
Yeah, okay. But uh, no, I, I think it's interesting that Kubrick's sort of making that point. And it's, there's a really great cut. Like, that's the music in this film is... I really like the music in this film because it's, it's like atypical. It's not your stereotypical, like, 60s mix. Nobody plays Jimi Hendrix on it. But there's a really great they cut... They do play Rolling Stones. Uh, over the closing credits. Although I suspect... I wonder if that's only become a cliche because of this. I wonder. Because this would be where I would have first heard Painted Black. Yeah, but I lived a very sheltered existence as a child. So, so, so <laughs> the, 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 this is before the Devil's Advocate. <laughs> Fair point. Um, was was that in Fair Devil's Advocate I as well? I think so. It was either that or something else. By um, yeah, yeah. with think, with a dodgy oh, Irish accent. What am I saying? Oh, you're think, was, you're thinking was, of um, um, the one with Al Pacino. Yeah, yes, no, it, it's uh, it's it's. It's not painted black. It's um, sympathy for the devil. Sympathy for the devil, which was used in Interview of the Vampire as well by yes. the Rolling Stones. But um, so yeah, Rolling Stones tend tend, tend to be kind of like I, all you, interchangeable. Yeah, you but but you you can't just keep using Rolling Stones move uh, songs. Or, or, or else, or else you do a rap version of of a Rolling uh, uh, Stone song, or 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 indeed a um, a uh, uh, what should we call it? Led Zeppelin song, like oh the immigrant song. Um. Uh, yeah, yeah, like like um, like uh, I think we talked on Ragnarok about it. You, you don't get to use the the immigrant song because then you don't have to come up with a song as good as the immigrant song. Um, you feel that way about Rolling Stones songs uh, in general. At least P Diddy just kind of sampled um, <laughs> Kashmir for for Godzilla. <laughs> some some of the best, uh, like that. Uh, I know that, that it's not technically a good movie. <laughs> that movie I like the qualification. Was um, um, it was and fun. They, and they, yeah, and they they had two 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 great songs that came out with it. The the P Diddy and Jamiroquai. Um, but here's the interesting thing. Cause I'm so sorry. I don't know where that came <laughs> I feel like that's not even the first mention of the 1998 <laughs> Godzilla, Godzilla movie on this Go- podcast. Gojira. Gojira. Um, no, this was not one called Gojira. But, the, um, but there's a really great musical cut where they're in the barracks where they're having that discussion about how um, Joker hasn't actually seen any combat. And they get this the song, you know, I'm going to the chapel and I'm going to get married. Right before you get the Tet Offensive, which involves everybody grabbing their rifles, leaping out of their beds and running out to do battle. Which sort of literalizes that connection between sex and violence in, in the film, I think. No? No. Okay, that's good. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I'm trying to see it. I'm, I'm, no, no, like, Even with the, this is my rifle, this is my gun, where you have them grabbing the crotch, you know, this is for fighting and this is for fun. By the way, I love those rhymes. Um... Those rhymes are awesome. Um, words to live by. Yeah, great uh, advice. Um, but there, there is no. Yeah, no. I, 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 I no. I, I, I do. I, there is there. There's certainly a lot of uh, reference to it early in the movie. I don't know how much of that is is Kubrick trying to make a point versus kind of portraying this sort of what Donald Trump would call lo- locker room talk. That's a fair point, I suppose. Um, one more Freudian point, um, yeah. because of course, Brad Stevens has made the argument that Kubrick's films, particularly after the early seventies, so um, around Barry Lyndon time, um, you can see 
Kubrick engaging with Oedipal themes. So, for example, obviously Barry Lyndon has Barry shot by his adopted son or his stepson uh, in a sort of duel. Um, you have, obviously, uh, Jack Torrance, who is basically killed by his own son, Danny, or his half-son, Danny. Um, and then you have, obviously, here, you have Pyle killing Hartman, um, who is basically the father of whatever Pyle has become as well. So I think that there is that interesting Freudian subtext there as well. It's not just all Eros and Thanatos. There's also some uh, some Oedipal stuff thrown in on top for a nice cherry on the uh, on the Freudian Sunday. Oedipal themes. Yeah, everybody loves them, right? Yeah. That should be our new podcast. Your Oedipal themes thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Edible themes? Eatable themes. Do you want to talk a little bit about anti-war movies and whether or not this is po- it's possible to make an anti-war movie and whether this is an anti-war movie and how ironically it can be that, how it's it's been sort of appropriated? Because there's a really great... Like, you read interviews with Matthew Modine and people... And he does interviews with, with military journals as well, like um, and obviously military magazines and stuff. And you get people saying to him... Well, the first thing I did after I saw a Full Metal Jacket was I signed up for the Marines. And you have Modine saying, well, well, thank you very much, but that isn't quite what I would have gotten from the film? No. Um, (laughs) Well, I suppose, like, you probably agree with this, Darren, but the the scene in the helicopter really did make you want to... With the gunnery sergeant. Yeah, With the the gunner who was supposed to be the gunnery sergeant. Because it, 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 like, uh, just murdering all of those uh, civilians, sorry, Viet Cong. Um, Um, You know, anyone who runs is a Viet Cong. Anyone who stands still is a very disciplined Viet Cong. I signed up the next day and they told me, um, you're not eligible. (laughs) (laughs) You're not even American. No, yeah, the, the, um... There, there, yeah, he he says, um, you, um, Matthew Modine says, how, 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 how do you murder women and children? And I didn't get this at, at, uh, at the time. Darren had to explain it to me because he's more kind of practiced in these things. Yeah. He says, you, you, you just don't need them as much. Yeah. Which means, which means that, um, you don't aim as far ahead of them with yeah. the gun because you shoot where, you don't shoot where they are, you shoot where they're going to be. D- yeah. D- Darren. <laughs> Darren's bedroom is on a third floor (laughs) (laughs) in in front of like a public park (laughs) so Darren knows not to lead Um, but yeah okay fine but I mean um, just in terms of of the the sort of anti-war because it is a movie that's been sort of appropriated by the army which is kind of strange when you watch the film like you know that for example Orly Ermey after he was discharged from the army, after he goes on over his discharge, he was actually promoted to the rank of gunnery sergeant oh. because that's the role that he played here. Yes. So it's kind of funny to see him sort of treated as an ambassador of the U.S. Marine Corps when you when you watch the movie. Although maybe that's just because it's our biases showing. Maybe it's possible to approach the film and see a film that's very much about the honor of combat. I, I just have difficulty seeing that in here. I think there there there's something about there's something about Joker's kind of um they never really explain Joker's motivations. Well, they never explain they, anybody's motivations for joining. Uh, yeah, presumably they're all well, uh, before the draft. Conscri- this is all before the draft. Well, I think I think the draft was before the Tet offensive because I was pretty sure that they had people signing up um before the Vietnam before the Tet offensive. It was the Tet offensive that sort of dried up the numbers. Um, although, according to Orly Ermey, his accounting of the situation in the film would have been that Hartman was particularly cruel and vindictive to these recruits because he was trying to pump out more bodies. So let me just see when the Vietnam draft came in, um, and we'll just go to the fact machine and check. 
And we're back from the fact machine. Um, the Vietnam draft didn't actually take place until December 1968. Um, so it would have been after the Tet Offensive and after the events of this movie. Well, so, Tet was in January. But it was in 1968, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. I beg your pardon. But, <laughs> me, me not to <laughs> date well. But um, there is... But there is sort of it is interesting to wonder like how people can look at this and see like a pro a pro war movie. Although apparently they do. I mean, you have critics like, for example, uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum has talked about how, uh, for example, you know he went to see it with the critic um, Bill Crone. So Bill Crone came out and said that you know as far as he was concerned, it was another goddamn recruiting film. The teenage boys who went to see Kubrick's picture with their girlfriends would come home thinking that war combat was neat and stuff like that. You have other examples as well. You have critics who have pointed out that you know filmic images of death and carnage are pornography for the military man. Well, you know, like it's it's inescapable. I think in in way it's in in a way it's almost impossible to make an anti-war movie. Well, this is the Truffaut it, quote where anything that depicts the act inherently glamorizes it. Yeah, like like I I feel that like I, I suppose like name an anti-war movie like like. Um, like say uh, Platoon or Saving Private Ryan, there there is all in in those movies. There is something that curiously, I I guess I'm I'm assuming I'm going to say that it speaks to the male psyche. I I I I, I don't know if that's um, if 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 that's unfair, but I I, I suppose pre, pre, predominantly that's where 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 these things are kind of. Um, aimed or sort of where yeah. those feelings are housed yeah where where you want to be um part 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 of that um kind of camaraderie and you think you're the person who's like throwing the grenade into the bunker rather than the person inside yeah or yeah, mean, you... like we like we we are kind of like and a, a, a lot of the, a lot of these things are are like this isn't a recruiting movie because you go see a lot of recruiting movies and it's very kind of uh, obvious clear. I I don't think Kubrick could be courted by that sort of. I feel like this is a movie you want to make about because because if that's what it becomes another recruiting movie, then I don't I I it's I, I think it's difficult to read the intentions of this movie other than just to look at the inhumanity of it all. Yeah. I mean, but Kubrick it, has, has argued in a letter, for example, to the Australian Film Censorship Office, that this is neither a pro-war nor an anti-war film. It is simply a war film. It is a film exactly. that depicts the inhumanity of it yeah. and the situation of it. And I, I, I think at the same time manages to 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 portray the uh, humanity by... by um, it's only... Because the dehumanizing is a process in this movie. Yeah. So in you wouldn't be able to really register that process if you couldn't um, see the humanity in the first place. Yeah, I, I think that I think that's fair to a certain extent. I mean, I think it's a very Kubrickian movie. It's it's maybe in some ways the archetypal Kubrickian movie because it's thematically. I think I think like again I referenced the John Hodgman discussing this and I'll include the link in the show notes. He argued that like the difference between this and say Platoon is that Platoon is very much and very definitely a Vietnam War film to the point where it's drawn quite literally from Oliver Stone's experiences of Vietnam. Right. What what he saw and what, what I kind of see as well when I look at this film is he saw Kubrick making a film that is more 
broad in it, its themes and its discussions and its sort of exploration of humanity. And that it's a film, you know, it is a war film, obviously, it, but it's very little in it that's, say, specific to Vietnam. It's it's a film that feels more general and archetypal. Really? I, I think... The, 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 like, I, um, the whole kind of... Often, often in uh, often in Vietnam movies, it's like, okay, welcome to the jungle. Here we're gonna, uh, 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 where 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 it's kind of like, um, so there we were. It was nineteen sixty eight. We were in literally anywhere in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the we were surrounded. Um, there was jungle, uh, booby traps occasionally, punji sticks also. <laughs> but like the, this, this is kind of um, the. This is set around the Tet Offensive. Yeah, so you can date a couple of days yeah. or whatever. And and it does askew a lot of the conventions of it. There's very little jungle warfare, and, for and example. Yeah, and they, they, they go Primarily to... Primarily because you um, can't shoot that in Britain. But anyway. They, um, is it Hue they go to? I don't I think know. it is, yeah. But I mean, I, I feel like the argument, though, is that it's more a thematic sounding board, like for Kubrick's sort of core themes and ideas. That idea of the duality of man that, like, Joker suggests somewhat flippantly. Yeah, and like and yeah. and Kubrick has sort of joked about that being like a, being asked to reduce his films to a single sentence and how that diminishes or belittles them. But like one of the things that I take away from Kubrick's work, and maybe I I am probably being overly reductive and overly sort of like dismissive of of, of him as a filmmaker. Obviously, there's a lot more to it. It's a lot more complicated. But one of the recurring fascinations of Kubrick, and like if I were to put his big themes in sort of bright lights and inverted commas is trying to make order out of chaos. Um, is like trying to make sense of a world that is arbitrary and random and doesn't conform to our expectations of it. That is, you know, full of random things. Like, for example, the ghosts that haunt The Shining. Like Barry Lyndon's sort of navigation of, like, the, the winds of chance and so on and so forth. Thinking in, in Clockwork Orange, there is an awful lot of structure. Yeah. And and the whole kind of like mirroring of 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 certain um, like uh, set uh, characters and 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 settings that you're coming back to yeah. in in that movie. Yeah. There's that it 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 feels like it's it like it's a fugue or some sort of like complicated like baroque musical piece yeah. where 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 it's constructed in oh, yeah, in that well, certain way but but the but the 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 the, the, the ingredients that you're putting into that um that structure are so kind of anarchic yeah. and colorful and and the central theme not to get too distracted about talking about like clockwork orange is that you you can't control people in the way that you want the way that the film suggests that the people want to you can't reduce people to a set of like you know res- or you shouldn't reduce people to a set of programmed responses and inputs you know you shouldn't create a pavlovian response in people a simple input and output system you know that you if you break an individual no matter how horrible that individual is to fit them within a system then you have done something horrific which is something that comes up repeatedly throughout his work like you could argue that what hartman does to the recruits in full metal jacket is just a version of what they try to do to alex in a clockwork orange except it really happens yeah. where they try to break down this person and rebuild them oh, it in definitely their image happens. yeah and, and while uh, while while drill sergeants don't um strike their um their rec- recruits um, they they can do a lot worse. Yeah, psychologically. So, yeah. yeah. Um. So uh, like this thing about oh, um, the drill sergeant would never hit a um a a recruit. Like they it, 
depends on your taste, I suppose. <laughs> whether or not that's a better yeah, whether, or worse than the yeah. alternative. Because I don't, um, like, this year should know, I don't mind if you hit me. <laughs> Just don't say anything mean about me online. Oh. <laughs> no, no. We, but, we sound lately like we've got a whole lot of flack on Twitter. Yeah. Literally nobody has said anything <laughs> kind of the negative, negative or... People yeah. have been very, very good about us. Yeah, he, um, yeah, you need to... <laughs> we're <laughs> suggesting people DM us with some really nasty things. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Um... But no, I, I do think, though, that's like... And that's interesting because you have that sort of contrast between... And, like, Kubrick's... You could argue that Kubrick making a Vietnam War film is the ultimate expression of that. Because the entire first half of the film is so regimented and so careful and so controlled and so fixed. And, I mean, even the camera movements are, like, more rigid and more sort of, like, pushing in, pulling out, as opposed to the second half, where, as you point out, you get a lot more pans, you get some handheld footage, you get a lot of, like, movement, and you get a lot of chaos in the second half. Like, the first half has a clear structure with clear protagonists and a clear arc. The second half... And Kubrick has talked about how, like, in the second half, what he wanted to do was to blow up the structure of filmmaking. The second half is, narratively speaking, quite close to chaos, even as it remains thematically pure, in that it's thematically the story of how Joker becomes a killer, but narratively speaking, it involves the character bouncing around, meeting a lot of new faces, getting cycled in, getting a lot of extended monologues, encountering characters who will never be heard from again, shooting characters who you've known for a scene, and getting drawn into these random... Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's that's it exactly. Linden is is a similar sort of structure in that it has this sort of attempt to make order from chaos. Mm. And one of the interesting things about Kubrick as a director for me, and like, again, you you want to compare to like someone like Nolan, where Nolan is interested in subjectivity, but his his camera positions and his filmmaking is always objective. It's always very rigid, very structured, very precise, very sort of steady. Whereas and, this is very uh, subjective, like uh, several points in the movie, like where, where you're you're establishing uh, in the kind of introductory scene to Orly Ermy that this is not just um, that this isn't a romp, yeah, because Orly Ermy is yeah, looking all, over you down into the uh, camera, into the camera, pointing, it, and you can tell saying, like, like you're um, you're, you're a maggot, basically, yeah. Well, you know that that's the that's the shot. I don't know if that's the exact shot or if he just recreated it in his uniform. But that's the shot that he used to sell, obviously, all his toys and his brand. If you Google him online, that's the first image that appears. It's him pointing his finger towards the reader at the screen. Um, And it is. It's an iconic image. And it is very much subjective. And you have a a kind of a repetition of that sort of shot when they're they're talking to Handjob um, as well. And they they all have their uh, opportunities to say something pithy. Yeah, <laughs> and the to animal lover. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, better you than me. Yeah, but there's there's even like you could argue that's juxtaposed then with the shot at the very end of the sniper with the camera looking down at her. So the camera's like you yeah. begin you begin in the position of looking up at Hartman and Hartman looking down at you coldly. And then you begin, and then you sort of end with this shot of you looking down at the sniper, with the sniper looking up at you, begging, shoot me, shoot me. Yeah, because um, it, it's like you're 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 being um, kind of dehumanizing. Sorry, you're being dehumanized, and you're also de- dehumanizing. So you're 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 take you're taking somebody's life away, not just their their humanity. So you're the one looking down. Yeah, kind of. Not, not as 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 well as being 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 the one who's been looked down upon. Yeah, 
And and there is there's like a lot of very careful structuring, which is why I, one of the things I, I quite like about Kubrick as a filmmaker is that you have this irony where Kubrick seems to believe the world is a chaotic, random and arbitrary place where people are subject to chaotic whims of chance and fate and where nothing that we do will have any real impact because of the forces that exist beyond ourselves. While at the same time, he chooses to tell these stories in a way where he demonstrates complete control of the frame and the shot and the structure. All of his framing is immaculate, the symmetry of his compositions, even even his narratives, although they, they revel in the chaos and the arbitrary nature of the situations in which characters find themselves, they're all symmetrical and they're all mirrored and they're all cleverly constructed. And it's it's fascinating to have that level of juxtaposition. I mean, you, you could argue, what's that statement about genius is the ability to hold two con- contradictory ideas in your head at the same time. Yeah. Kubrick's films, like, genuinely seem to do that, where they seem to hold this idea of the world being, like, arbitrary and random, while still being it's portraying or exploring those worlds in a manner that is perfectly controlled and meticulous and crafted. It's, it's remarkable. It is, like, I and I'm... No, I, I've been... I'm not a huge I don't love Kubrick's films as a as a rule but I admire him tremendously as a director because he can do stuff like that. Yeah, I yeah, I I, I really enjoy those sophisticated kind of structures. I think recently we talked about Milos Forman's Amadeus. Yeah. And 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 that was something something that I really kind of but that 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 was that was very different what what to what Kubrick does um in this. Cause I, I, yeah, I, I think we 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 we've talked about Clockwork Orange, um, as 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 the kind of perfect kind of encapsulation of that, and and the the and in its great source material, to to play that sort of uh, structural game in, because yeah. you're talking about it, and like the the. the, the was the, the, the name of 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 the book is a, a and the movie is a clockwork orange yeah um and it, it's kind of interesting that like even when we talk about symmetry we end up you know suggesting symmetries between kubrick's films it isn't that kubrick's films are symmetrical of themselves they always seem to have partners and pairs like we talked about barry Lyndon being like the evil twin of uh, eyes wide shot and obviously we could talk about a full metal jacket being almost the evil twin or the the twin of uh, a clockwork orange in some respects. Yeah, it's all it's all um there's all symmetry. There was um he uh he uh he he died um the 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 same way he was born. I don't know if that was true. <laughs> um. <laughs> um, no. Uh yeah, that, that 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 would be strange if that's the way lives went. I mean, I like the music actually. I have to admit I've got a strong spot for the music because as I pointed out when you do these Vietnam or 60s films, there's always the urge or the impulse to hit the greatest hits, to hit Jimi Hendrix or Bob Dylan or whatever. Any kind of like period movie, you do something like American Gangster and it's like, 110th Street. (laughs) (laughs) While the camera is on, 110th Street. Yeah, Um, yeah. And um, I don't know, somebody made the point on, I think, a podcast about how these movies kind of give you a false idea of what pop culture was back then. Yeah. So, like... like well, it's pop culture through the benefit of hindsight, where you get yeah. to pick, like, the good parts and forget the bad parts. Exactly. I mean, Kubrick's talked about this, like, because what he did when he wanted to pick the music for the film was he didn't 
and and he made a conscious effort to avoid obviously the cliche Kubrick sort of uh, classical music, which he used a lot in all of his, all of his other films. So he used popular music, which he wasn't as au fait with. But so what he did was he went back through the Billboard 100 and found these songs that you know that people like the bird song. Yeah, like I mean, who would have everybody heard about, about the bird? But would you ever have thought that the bird song would be the perfect Vietnam sort of uh, piece of music? Yes, but I, but I'm. But, uh, anyway. You are yeah, a genius on the level yeah, of Stanley yeah. Kubrick. Um, and I think it works very well. And even the, these boots are made for walking, which isn't a song about Vietnam in any way, shape or form. No, but it works but it, very it, well in the scene. It does. It does. And the, the, the and even Paint It Black. Yeah. Like I've talked about kind of Rolling Stones and um, Led Zeppelin getting overused. But I mean, the truth is they're really good. And, and, and it works well in the in the context of what the movie and especially the end of the movie is trying to say. When they're just continuing along and of like... As if nothing you, happened. Yeah. I and, do... Uh, b- b- I guess b- burning down the rest of the country. Yeah. Right? Like doing, doing the best job they can. And that's, I actually love the, as as much as I'm, like, I, I'm not a huge fan of this movie, but I love the closing scenes where it almost becomes, like, it almost ventures into the realm of symbolism that I would associate with, say, um, was it Apocalypse Now, where you have just the fires consuming. It looks like they're wandering through hell when they yeah. wander into the building, because it's this old ar- antique sort of architecture, but with fire behind all the grills and all the flames. It looks like, you know, sort of a science fiction movie's version of hell. Or even when they're walking off into the night with the burning flames sort of behind them lighting the sky. It looks apocalyptic. It looks, and again, you it's know... It's apoco- apocalyptic. Yeah. And the reason it is is because uh, these powers kind of... The, 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 the whole... Like, Vietnam became this uh, quagmire for American colonialism, the same way the Americans tried to create the same situation in Afghanistan for the Soviets in 1979. It's like, let's import a whole lot of jihadis to incite the... To, the local population. Yeah. And, and stir and, things up. And, yeah, and get the get the Soviets to invade and then have them spend the 80s in, in Af- Afghanistan the same way we spent the, the 70s. 60s and 70s in, 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 in Vietnam. The same thing that the I think it was the Washington Post or New York Times is suggesting that America should try to do for Iran now is make make um, make Syria Iran's Vietnam, um, which well yeah, the, 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 that's the the, the way. I imagine like, that's a very I'm, cold, cynical the, summary. This of the... is something that's been reported kind of secondhand, oh. but we oh, can okay. we can put it in in the in the show notes. But that that was. Kind of uh, how some people have interpreted this kind of uh, opinion editorial. Wow! Um, yeah, that's crazy. But anyway, that feels like an appropriate note on which to wrap things up. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about yet? Probably, probably plenty. But there is. I mean, it is a Kubrick film. Yeah, there, there's, there's, there's. You can almost nothing... go through a scene by scene. Yeah, and I, and I mean, I think we were doing that when we were going through the Ordi Army. Yeah. Um, parts and there, there is you can you can get a lot out of actually going through each, each scene in a movie. But I suppose it's not really that kind of forensic. Uh, yeah, if you want to listen to the four-hour version of this podcast, you can subscribe to our Patreon, <laughs> which doesn't. <laughs> if exist you hate in, yourself, yeah, yeah, uh, but which doesn't exist yet. But which we're pretty sure that you can set up for us. Uh, but yeah, no. So um, I, I really, really enjoyed that actually, and I was quite glad to watch it again. I've been meaning to watch Full Metal Jacket for a while. Um, and it was it was a nice reminder of Orly Army. I mean, you say reminder, 
Ermi was Ermi's great in lots of things. I had was it uh, Jay Coyle, one of our past guests, reminded me of one of Ermi's like lovely small roles. And do you remember Seven, which may yes. also be on the list? But there's a really great moment in yeah. Seven where he's he's basically the he's in charge of the police department and he's you know sitting at a, a a desk you know having a conversation with the officers. Phone rings. He picks it up, answers it, says, "This ain't even my phone," and hangs it up. Uh, with no other context and that was just that's one of that's was what Jay thought of when he thought of Ermi passing and it's actually there are so many great moments like that as well because he added so much kind of character to the films that he was in absolutely and and this one in particular I think the Full Metal Jacket wouldn't be the movie that it is without no without 100% it's, it's a real kind of uh, cinematic highlight I, I do I do think that the second half is a strong movie as well and I think um, that I think that it's a strong movie overall. I think the first and second half are two halves of the same film. It's just that the first is so iconic. I think. It is, and well, the first also has a structure, a clean structure. The second consciously avoids. Yeah, which 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 is interesting because it would be it would be more difficult to see the structure in the second half of the movie if you hadn't set it up in such a clean kind of. Um, almost kind of rat's cage in yeah. environment in the first half. Yeah, the contrast is is perhaps more effective for that difference between yeah. them. You know, and it's sort of it is jarring, particularly because you know that Kubrick's doing it intentionally because you've watched him not only obviously all his earlier films, but even earlier in the same film, you've watched him execute that like clockwork precision. So it's kind of fun to see the sharp contrast of him not doing that within the same film is is kind of is impressive. Yeah, you know, they shot the second half first. Really? Yeah. And they uh, and and they shot the first half backwards. Yeah, so in reverse, memento his, style. Uh, yeah, bits of his brain just got back into yeah, his skull. Yeah, they had to have the bit where where um yeah, unfortunately Vincent D'Onofrio had to put his brain back together at the end of it. Yeah, you know he he broke he hurt his knee. He had to actually get uh, reconstructive surgery performed on his knee. Uh, wow, he was in a world. Of- <laughs> yes, he was, Andrew. That feels like an appropriate place in which to end this podcast, uh, Andrew. If we want to be in your world of. <laughs> Where can we find you? The internet. A-Q-U-I-N-N-I-U-Q-A on Twitter. Or you can, if you see me in the real world, take a photo of me. and Post it online. Yeah, yeah. Proof of life is what they call it. You can follow me online at Darren underscore Mooney. I have a book available, Opening the X-Files, which is available from Amazon, wherever all good books are sold and even some bad ones um you can find me online at the movie blog but i also uh, co-host this podcast which you're listening to if you're listening to it you're probably aware that you can listen to it on stitcher itunes or even directly on our soundcloud but in case you've heard it through some other source now you know follow us online at, at the 250 spelt using real letters do you, do you want to plug some of your other podcasts some listeners might know that that, that uh, Darren's been been um, uh, that that Darren does a lot of other podcasts too. I occasionally pop up on some other podcasts. So, for example, I do some X Files related podcasting to do with the book. So, I, I very kindly got invited on not another X Files podcast podcast, uh, which is an X Files podcast from Vancouver, uh, which is very very cool. I occasionally do the X Cast with uh, Tony Black, who's been a guest on this podcast and we're hoping to have him back sometime soon and i also occasionally uh do the scan on podcast if you're into film on a weekly basis want a more concentrated dose of higher quantity of films in a lower quantity of time you can find us online every thursday at scan on where it's myself and a rotating uh pool of guests andrew we still have to get you to do one of those awesome all right take it easy guys we'll be back next week when we will be talking about hopefully either tangerines or avengers infinity war 
We promise we will talk about tangerines at some point. About tangerines. No, no, we didn't. We promise we will talk about tangerines at some point. Some point. Some point. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Bye. We went there and we were gone and we're in harmony. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. Forever let us hold our banner high, 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 high. Boys and girls from far and near, you're welcome as can be. M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E.